welcome to episode 44 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And it's 2022, so Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year, listeners. That's right, or as they say here in Japan, Akemashite omedetou gozaimasu. Yes, I've been hearing a lot of that. You'll hear that for a little while. <laughs> Pretend the first to be three happy. days, anyway. One nice thing about Japan is New Year's here is a three-day uh, holiday. Pretty Unlike much, the yeah. one day that you get in the West, you know, because everybody's back to work on, uh, well, this year the third, I guess, but the second usually. Here we're off until, well, we're off until the sixth, but uh, most people are going back to work on the fourth here. Yeah, you get depends. those three days. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not like it used to be. In the old days, uh, everything completely shut down. Couldn't right. buy anything. Uh, you know, if I you remember ran that, out even of, when uh, I was here, that was happening. Yeah, you know, if you ran out of that long ago. Uh, milk or something, forget about it. Yeah. But uh, now, although this year the supermarket's closed for three days, but there's a lot of businesses that are open on New Year's Day and, uh, right. you know, bring in the yen. I guess just like uh, back in the Again, US. I guess some people, they get workers too. I guess some people just have to hey, yeah. get away from their families and stuff, you know? Yeah, I can understand that. Just right. like us. Yeah, <laughs> far away. We're so far away. If we went any further, we'd be closer. So, no oh, boy, Think that about made my that head hurt. <laughs> <It's> assuming that <laughs> I'd assuming, rather not. <laughs> assuming the world is not flat, but that's a different discussion. Yeah, that's not that's, on this uh, podcast. Yeah. That's that's for our other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Russ and Mike challenge scientific, uh, you know, yeah. facts. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how good we'd be at that. It would be no, I don't think so. Well, least, we'd yeah. be good at. We wouldn't be good at challenging them, but we no. would be good at coming up with wacky uh, yeah, alternatives. I have a few, have a few yeah. about the early family of man. But uh, oh, anyway, anyway so yeah, it's a new year. I, I'd like to hear that. Actually, okay. I would tune yeah. into that podcast. Yeah. I think we'll something like that. Yeah, uh, right. it goes back to a joke from The Sopranos. I think, but that's something else. Uh -huh. So it's a new year. Uh, there's going to be a lot of new music. Um, but we've still got a lot of things. Of course, I don't think anything has come out in the past two days, so uh, we'll be dealing with... Stuff uh, will be coming out on the 7th, though. The 7th, yeah, is on the Friday. It's always a Friday in classical musical, usually, anyway. Yeah. But we've still got some winter yeah. releases to work through. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll yeah, have a, lot of them. a month or two of that. Yeah, we'll have to skip And a few new things, too. too. Yeah. So well, these we... are new. They're just a few months. They're a month or two yeah, old. You know. they're still new. Still new, new yeah. enough. New and uh, it's good to, uh, you know, be free from Christmas music now. I feel like, you know, my ears are going back to uh, pre-jingle well, bells. You know, you know, it's still Christmas, technically. It goes until the 5th. And then yes. Epiphany is on the 6th, and it's over then. That's it. Yeah. I'm you not know? feeling it anymore, though. Yeah, we they've done that to us. In the yeah. old days, we'd be like uh, eating, drinking, and being merry for 12 days. Yeah. I'm just eating and drinking. Not merry yet. Not being we'll, merry. We'll see what happens uh, tonight. <laughs> so we go before we go on our uh, merrymaking music journey, I'd uh, like to remind our listeners and any new listeners we have uh, that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss for streaming. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer. Uh, wherever you can also follow us uh, at username Adult Music Podcast. We usually get the listening list up a week before the podcast if you want to hear the music uh, before that. Um, 
And you can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well. And we're on all the major platforms, uh, including obviously the one you're listening to us now on. Uh, however, uh, sometimes, depending on the platform, all of the links are not clear or uh, the hyperlinks are not active. So if you have any problem following the links, come on over to our host app platform, Podbean, uh, where you'll find everything uh, easy to follow and well laid out. And if you that's enjoy where the it podcast, gets uploaded. Yeah, that's where yeah. we upload it. That's our host. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. And that helps us grow our audience, which gives us new listeners. And we're always happy to do that. Yeah, or send us your top 10 list of classical and jazz recordings from last year. We'd love to see it. Yeah, that would be interesting. That'd be I'm fun. sure it'd be better than the Grammy list. And yeah. uh, if you have any other comments uh, or with your list, uh, please do contact us directly. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Yeah. So um, let me see. Yeah, list. Uh, I had some friends who were uh, last week we did our uh, best of the year. And I had some friends who were absolutely delighted that we put up all the links for the, for those oh, really? recordings. There were a That's lot good. of them. Yeah, but they were, they were very happy. You know, over mm. the past year we've been doing this, um, I've, you know, through trial and error and uh, refining uh, the post-production things, worked right. on organizing things better so I have everything at my fingertips and I have everything uh, in uh, sort of uh, categories in um, a good archive but uh, yeah, digging back through, <laughs> remembering which episode we did each thing on uh, did All take right. some time. But uh, yeah, I scroll thought, through. I thought in case we got any new listeners or people hadn't heard anything, it would be good to have the links handy. So yeah, and if you like there. what we, if you if you think it's all um, very convenient to to find, you have to give a hand to uh, Russ for that because if if I were in charge, this this would be the unmade bed of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess well, I'd try to put up a few links, but yeah. that's about it. Well, if you haven't, uh, yeah. if you're a new listener or you have, you've been busy for the holidays making merry or, you know, enduring f familial obligations, uh, go back and check out our best of 2021, uh, our favorite uh, picks from last episode. There's a nice list there of both classical yeah, and Yeah, I've been jazz. checking it out myself like all week. I have it all in my... Uh my yeah. iPod Touch, and I've been listening to it all. And I thought we made some excellent choices. I have to say, yeah, some, some good of my music, favorite there. music of the year. And yeah. I, you know, every week we, you know, we do this Sunday night. I get it uh, all worked out, all the links and rest of the information up Monday morning. And by that time, Mike's got his new list for me, and I'm working on my because yeah, he's doing the technical things. So I'm kind of already doing the the list for next week. Yeah. <laughs> then I make my picks, I make the playlist, and we've got to start listening to the new stuff. So that's yeah. been how the last year has worked. So there hasn't been that's a lot gonna... of time to go back and, you know, listen to the things that I really did like. So it was nice to revisit everything. Um, it was, yeah. And not listen gonna... to it and think about how I'm going to explain it to just enjoy yeah. it, you know, so. Okay, so adult music has a New Year's resolution. Now, of course, it's a New Year's resolution. We don't know that we're actually going to be able to achieve this. But we are going to try to put up a podcast every week this year. We're going to try to do the entire year, yeah, without missing a weekend. Well, that's uh, that's our resolution. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. 
Yeah, if, if, if you know, and we'll do it if unless something comes up, which happens. But you know, you know, solar we'll flares knock out the internet, or right, whatever. You know, we get censored or something. We get censored. Who knows? How are we going to get censored? You never know. You These never days, know. everybody These days. can get censored. That's right. We'll you have know. to have controversial guests on, I guess. <laughs> Who would that be? <laughs> I don't have no idea. Who's controversial in jazz? I don't, I don't know. know. Or classical? I don't know. Kenny know, G. Maybe all of it, depending on your... Uh, Kenny G. Oh, boy. Did you hear Jazz United's uh, kind of yeah. podcast on yeah. Kenny G? Wow. That, yeah. They really um, uh, don't like him very much. Yeah. <laughs> well... Although I think I think Nate Chanen is a little more accepting. He, I mean, I don't think he was too pro either, but he's kind of... Um, he's up pro, but he's not... He wasn't for Kenny G, but I'm right. just... Uh, he's, he's a little more kind of... Inviting and upset, accepting though. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm it sure it was a Kenny, good podcast. Check that out. <laughs> Kenny G is, uh, you know, he's not too worried. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> he's not. We think about him. So I I am. I I kind of dread the the latest uh, Kenny G release. It's gonna. Although these days, it's it's not just gonna take over the radio like it did back in the day. You'd hear this no, like it won't. this one yeah. big pop song would come out or something, and that would be all you'd hear. You know, it's interesting. This is mm, an interesting thing. You know, the way that uh, music listening has changed since we were young. Right. I mean, the only way and the only thing really to listen to other than music that you you know paid your cash for uh, was right. the radio. And, right. you know, you had a few stations that churned out, you know, the same pop tunes until you couldn't stand them anymore. You had the classic right. rock you know, they played the same old tunes. Uh, right. And then, yeah, the interesting stuff down on the left hand of the dial. And that's where I got my education in classical and jazz music, mm-hmm. listening to college radio. Um, and I used to college get radio. Uh, college radio and some, you know, well-produced college radio uh, from Amherst that would float over into New York, too. And then I would have to hit the library and borrow vinyl and uh, right. listen to things. Uh, but you couldn't evade all of the nauseating pop music of the day. Um, but these days, I don't even have any idea what that is because I haven't turned on the radio in years, you know, because it's all online right. listening. So, Yeah. Thank I got to tell you my uh, college radio uh, story. I was a college oh. radio DJ at the uh, AM station we had that no one listened to. Oh. And one day I uh, was feeling a little uh, like I needed a little snack, maybe a little something to drink. So I put on a really long record. You know, it was tied to the whipping post. I spe- did a live oh. version. I specifically remember. It was like, yeah, it took up the whole the whole side. So I put it on. I go out and I had to go outside the building into the what what those days were would have been a convenience store. These days they're 24 hours. And I go in there and they're listening to the – the, uh, the, you know, the the college radio on it, yeah. and the, the the record was skipping. Oh no! It was skipping. So I, heard I was like, "Oh no!" And I just, I, I, I didn't say that. I said something a little right. nastier than that. And I just yeah. ran back to to the studio. Right. Didn't oh, get wow. my food. Oh man! And that was uh, that that. If I were in charge, this podcast would be the equivalent of that. I'm just sure. <laughs> I'm sure of it. So well, they could, just be grateful that we have Russ here, everybody. Okay. Well, I try to keep the, the technique, technical end of things going smoothly. But you know, Okay. So anyway, we'll we, we're, it's a new year and we're starting out with new music. And we figure by now your New Year's hangover should have gone away. 
Yeah. Um, or you're still working on it. <laughs> or you're still working on, you're on like, building it up. Like me. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm. So uh, let's let's give you something to uh, to put into your head. Now, last year, we, we, we just – our last episode was just um, – um, all of our best of the year. So um, it's time to start on the best of 2022. And I think we've already got a candidate right here. We can't say because, you know, what's the top, you know, I, I choose like what, a top 10, you know, this, you know, I might not mm. choose this, but this is a, we're starting out with a, the year with a pretty fantastic piano album by one of um, adult music's favorite pi- um, pianists, Daniil Trifonov. Yes. Um, we both like him a lot. Yeah, and um, this is Bach, The Art of Life. Yeah, and it's, and it's a surprise the, because... It's on the Deutsche Grammophon label, I just want to say. Deutsche Grammophon, got to give the label credit. Go ahead. Trifonov has been prolific in the last few years doing all kinds of things, but Bach is not something you're going to expect him to come up with because, uh, you know, he's done you know a lot of uh, Russian romantic. composers, yeah. romantic era romantic things. Modernist. And so to go back to, uh, you know... Baroque is a bit of a surprise. And, and he's an absolutely fantastic pianist, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I've, I've looked at some of the reviews and uh, things oh. around. So, uh, well, you know, you know how people are. They I have their favorite was... versions of things. And um... Okay. I thought this was spectacular. Now, it's... um. It's the Bach families, but Johann Sebastian is the, you know, Papa main. Bach there is the uh, main draw like it starts out with his son work works by his sons then it eventually gets to him now the centerpiece of this recording is the art of fugue and i'm really willing to bet that that's what uh people had issues with because this is very much a piano trifonov sort of um interpretation of this um i just got through um listening to another podcast um the wtf bach podcast um and um they've just went through or who who was that um I wrote this guy's name down. Let me see. Um, oh, I remember his name is you, and I couldn't remember the the host of that uh, podcast. Um, went through every fugue, one per episode, uh, of, in the art of fugue, and oh, really wow. talked about it. He he interviewed um, Christoph Wolf, who's the uh, leading Bach scholar about this. It was really nuts. If you really want to get do a deep dive into the art of fugue, uh, check out that podcast. It's pretty uh, amazing. Um, I, I, I thought when I was listening to this, I had to kind of throw that out the window because it's not, he's not really going for any kind of historical accuracy or sort of, um, uh, that, that type of performance here. But Trifonov is such an amazing pianist. Anyway, let me get into this. Okay. The, it's a, it's a two CD set or a very long, um, uh, MP3, I guess, or a stream if you're listening to it that it's a way. Lot of, there's a lot of Bach here. You probably want to break it up when you listen to it. Yeah, yeah, I did it in two days. I was kind of, although I was really compelled by it. I kept going. Really, I went into the deep into the second CD, and then finally mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, gotta go to bed." I finished it the next day. All right, so we start out with um, Johann Christian Bach. Okay, these are all Bach's sons. Um, so not a number five in A major, Opus Seventeen, number five. If you want to check that out, it's in two movements, and. You get this pretty piano sound and a very clear recording, the first things that you notice about this um, this album. Um, it's played dry with very little pedal, but there is some discrete pedal in there. So it's a very – a lot of times he, he gets a very like staccato type sound, especially in the art of fugue, which is probably what put off 
a lot of listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Vikinger Olafsson, who's really has made that sort of style of playing his own. Uh, the lines in this are exceptionally clear, all the melodic lines. It's rather got a Mozartian feel to it. It's a classical sounding work, although I think it's a little... Actually, this might be... I don't remember his years. This this might be a classical era work. Um, the, there's pedal during the arpeggiated chorus and at the end of the exposition to signal the section and provide contrast. So he does a lot with the sound to let the listener know what the section is. I personally don't need that, but uh, I think it's helpful a lot of times. It's also kind of interesting. I, I sort of like when the color changes in different sections. Um, I like uh, Trifonov's way of contrasting contrasting with the sound. Uh, he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve to color the various sections of the sonata movement. Um, very enjoyable to listen to. Uh, his playing brings a smile. I like that. And the second movement is the presto, similar melody, and I think it's the same key. It sort of it seems to start on the same chord anyway, um, but it's faster, uh, a lot of scalar and arpeggiated figuration. Um, uh, yeah, I like this a lot, this particular piece. Um, this is a case I wrote here of the pianist, not the piece. The pianist makes the piece good. It's not like the piece is kind of making the piano, the pianist... Uh, look mm-hmm. look really sharp it's uh he really uh makes this piece a lot more than i think it is um so i really enjoyed this there's a gorgeous sense of line in all voices and through both movements really great third track wilhelm friedemann bach polonaise number eight in e minor fk 12 8 i don't know what fk is it's well it's his um cataloger but i don't know <laughs> who who that was uh, this is a very quiet song-like piece. I always think of a polonaise as a dance, so I was kind of... Uh, I thought it was a dessert. Per, yeah. Oh, you thought polonaise? Did you enjoy that? <laughs> yeah. Polonaise? Was it delicious? Yes. I can't imagine what that would even... If a polonaise was cream. a dessert... Yeah. Oh, you think it'd have fresh cream? Yeah. I, I can't... I Yeah, that didn't bring up an image for me. <laughs> like, oh. what, would it, what would that be like? I'm just goofing. That's all right. I know. But I'm just... No, but I'm always kind of... Trying to go along with that and say, hmm, you know, <laughs> what would that be like? Anyway, it's an elegant work uh, played with clarity and poise. Poise. There's a word you don't hear too poise. often anymore, but there's a lot of poise in this. Uh, he makes it appealing and he brings out the harmonic idiosyncrasies when they occur. His playing has a laser like focus on the melodic line and its harmonies and had me focusing intently. And he, you know, I wasn't really, my mind wasn't wandering there in this. He really kept my attention next one of our favorite composers Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach he is the oldest surviving son of Johann Sebastian and uh, we like him for his uh, quirky sense of humor Mm. and there's a lot of that in this piece Rondo in C minor what quo I know this one Uh, 59 WQ 59 a rather ebullient theme in this one with those quirky hesitations and oddities of harmony that we're familiar with in good old CPE's music. Uh, what's catching my ear is Trifonov's ability to separate each note, even in quick figures. He has the humorous sense of timing required to put this across, uh, which is a new quality that I'm discovering in him. I didn't know he I didn't know he had a sense of humor. You, know, you don't know, but you know, this music brings it out. I'm certainly hoping he'll do an entire album of CPE box music. I think he'd be really excellent in it. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, this was great. To tell you the truth, just to mm. break up, there's a long list of things here, but what I've yeah. liked about him, you know, I, I really love Rachmaninoff 
works. Yeah. But um, there's uh, a, a danger in, in Rachmaninoff, you know, to become sort of uh, over-emotional. Uh, yeah. Because there's so much emotion and drama in, you know, that works. And I, when it's I first gushing, heard, yeah, yeah Trivenoff's play, mm. playing of that, it was very restrained and yeah. with just enough, you know, he never indulges in that. He just right. plays it with just enough touch of um, emotion and doesn't dwell on anything too much. And I really liked that. So I really wondered, um, you know, how how is he going to handle the Bach? And I've been listening to this recording since it came out and uh, right. I thought it showed another side of him but he handled it equally as well and I think like he got the jokes in yeah the humor in the uh, CPE Bach and he handled it you know really nicely and so for me it was like yeah. oh this is a different side of him that we haven't seen yet so I yeah one it. thing he does on this particular piece and this is why I want to hear him play more CPE Bach is he will slightly pause when an odd, odd harmonic note comes in. It's a really, right. it's almost imperceptible, but it catches you because like you're not getting the, the flow yeah. and then he'll hit that that odd note to make and it stand heard, out. It's really cool. We've heard yeah. uh, performances or one recently that just sort of glossed over that kind of thing. Uh, mm. it, you know, I think in the interpretation of CPE box music, like I say, you can you can emphasize those sort of quirks and interesting things that are sort of, you know, it's almost like a stand-up routine and the timing of the joke is everything. But if you just keep going on, it's easy to just not notice it. Uh, so it's kind of nice that he's noticing it and bringing it to the listener's attention so that, you know, you catch these sort of, you know, interesting things that stand out in his music. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, we're spending a lot of time on Carl Philip Emanuel here. It's oh. these, this is the only track of his yeah, yeah. on the entire album. But uh, we're just such big fans. We're going to have a Carl Philip Emanuel Bach uh, album pretty soon, actually, by another pianist with a good sense of humor, Mark Andre Amlan. That's coming out uh, next week, actually. I'm gonna, oh. Well, we won't have it on the podcast next week, but oh, it's coming out. That's we right. will yeah. be talking about it though. Yeah. But it's coming out next week. I'm going to have to. It's on Hyperion too. I've so seen that. Yeah, so you can't listen to it. We yet can't listen either. to it on Deezer no. or any no. other or streaming, any streaming site. No, we're going to have to acquire the CD, and it's expensive too. It's a double album. Ah, they're killing me. All right, next, Johann Christoph Friedrich Bach. Boy, there were a lot of Bachs. Um, there were women Bachs too, but none of them are on this album. They had to oh. compose as well. You know, hmm. but anyway, all the all the sons, the sons all had professional positions though in their lives, so they all went to the ends of Europe and took up some chair there. Anyway, this is Allegretto con variazioni on a on a tune called "Ah, Vuderege Mama," which means "Shall I tell you, Mom?" Okay, <laughs> and the and the line is "Shall I tell you, Mom, what is tormenting me?" No, don't tell you. And it mom. goes like, "A vous dire je mama." You probably recognize that melody as "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" if you speak English. So this is the French kind of folk song version of "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." That's basically what it is. Um, there are one or two extra notes to accommodate the French text, though. Uh, Mozart set these uh, as a set of variations. That's the really famous one, and his is rather spare. And then it gets into some you know, involved variations. Um, this one's very different, though, than what Mozart did. Okay, each... Tr they, they separated the, all these variations 
into different tracks. I don't understand why they do this. Are you really going to go and listen to one variation? Oh, I want to hear the fifth variation. And you're going to go to track 23 to hear that or something? It's a little bit too much pausing between them, yeah. It's like you're kind of ready to get on to the next one. Yeah, and I think it's around a 20-minute piece. I mean, just put it on one track, you know? I don't know. Um, The theme isn't uh, played as nakedly and simply as it is in Mozart's version. It's a little more sort of decorated right away. Um, and right away in Variation 1, Trifonov is showing his athletic ability at the keyboard, playing fast with a highly articulated sense of the line. Very beautiful. Uh, sometimes the theme is clearly articulated in the variations, and sometimes it's well hidden. Um, but you'll recognize it through the uh, the chords, basically. You know, it's not too hard to follow. Um uh, the 19 tracks go by pretty fast, and it's not a even though it has 19 tracks, it's a fairly short work. They're all all the variations are a minute or around a minute long. Okay, next tracks 24 to 35 on disc one are Notebook for Anna Magdalena Bach um, selections from that. Now, if you've ever played the piano, if you studied the piano or pre- took piano lessons when you were younger, you inevitably played quite a few of these works I uh, was and I have to say what a pleasure it is to hear them played by a professional pianist because you usually hear them played by some kid who's plunking out the notes <laughs> on the piano you know and just to hear them played with such a beautiful line like this is a real treat um, let me see what do I want to say here um, there yeah I'm not gonna go through all of these they're all really short um, except that there are a few that are very very familiar um, let me see. The Minuet in G Major, composed by Christian course, yeah. Petzold. Yeah, everybody's played that one. I played it, and I hammered it out, too, just like all those kids. It's very elegant here. And it really made me smile. I liked that one a lot. Um, the Polonaise in G Minor, track 33, was composed by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Um, soft and loud contrasts in this one, which I really enjoyed, too. I just want to say, this isn't all works by... Bach or the Bach family, they're just probably family favorites. It's, it's kind of comes right. across as sort of like a, a photo album in sound, if you can think of that. You know, it's just kind of probably things that they really liked. Nice little set to have. Okay, track 36. Uh, Brahms's transcription of Bach's Chacon in D minor. Um, it's it's originally the, viol- the, the famous vi- solo violin Chacon. Uh, this is for the left hand only. So it's kind of interesting because um, the harmony is filled out, but there's a real narrow range of what's being played in this. Mm. It's, it's it sort of sounds uh, Brahms keeps it close to the range of the violin that the violin uses because it's just you know the left hand. Well, the violin you can play high and low notes, but with the left hand you really can't. You can only go like right. an octave or maybe one or two notes more than that, right? If you have giant hands. So there's a total change of tone here, this heavy work. Um, this is um, it, it, just having on, using only your left hand alters the entire tone that Trifonov is playing with because the tonal range is really limited. Um, so this was interesting. I liked hearing it, but I was kind of like, well, it just felt like I was I was kind of constricted. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I didn't have that wide range. Even the violin gets a wide range. It just can't play the chords. That's the only thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was this was kind of a bit of an oddity. Again, he's got such amazing evenness, clarity of scales, um, and some of the effects he achieves are of two hands. Like he's got that like you know trills going with the in the high end while the bass notes are playing the um, 
you know the the melody it's it's amazing it's kind of because only he's only doing that with one hand and it's all very clear anyway worth hearing all right next we get to the um the main event johann sebastian bach the art of fugue this is the entire thing it's about uh a little more than an hour long i'd say and it kind of gets divided between discs one and two mm. now this is probably you said that some of the uh, reviews uh didn't like this and this is probably the work that did that because there are Bach purists out there and uh, they're, they're not going to like this because <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is very much a um, uh, it's, it's very much a piano um, interpretation of this and um, Trifonov uses the uh, resources of the piano to put this across now he doesn't play it in a romantic way he is using the mostly quieter sounds and very little pedal you know if any to play it but um He's getting a lot of effects you just couldn't possibly get on a, you know, a keyboard of box time. Right. Um, yeah, we're not gonna obviously we're not gonna talk about all four, fourteen <laughs> of these, um, of these um, you know, different ways of approaching this um, the art of fugue theme. They're all in the same key, all of the contrapunctus. And um, once we get to the very end, uh, contrapunctus fourteen, which is the famous unfinished one, um, Trifonov himself finished it, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, plays uh, his version of it. Um, he, again, uh, he starts it very quietly, almost like in a church-like way. Um, by the six-minute mark, the volume has increased in a subtle, gradual crescendo. He does this quite a bit. He'll often start one of these, um, we can't really call them movements, but um, a contrapunctus, like, very loud, and then the next one will be soft. There's a lot of contrast. Mm -hmm. And, again, that's going to make the Bach purist angry. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. Um, yeah. But by the time the music reaches a resolution at the seven-minute mark, it reaches... This is... I'm talking about Contrapuntus 14 now, the unfinished one. It reaches peak volume, and then a different section starts. The dynamics start to quieten again by the eight-minute 30 mark. So the entire work is played like a gigantic arch, which certainly is not what Bach intended as far as dynamics are concerned. I certainly think these are worth hearing just because of the the uh, prowess of the uh, the pianist here it's it's really yeah. amazing playing if not a uh, you know an ideal sort of interpretation of this but again all the voices in these are very clear it's really incredible the gradation of tone he gets uh, it just gives me a headache to even imagine approaching this uh, playing mm. like this uh, the disc ends with Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring um, from uh, the uh, Cantata Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben uh, BWV 147. This is the uh, version arranged by Myra Hess, I believe, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this is very familiar. You've heard this. You probably heard this at weddings, in fact. It gets played at a lot of weddings, at least in Japan it does. Um, here it's played quietly with a floating quality to the triplets, and we feel freed from the tight intellect of the art of fugue. It's kind of a nice choice, a little, maybe a little... Right. Uh, Little whipped cream there, like the uh, a, a little palette. polonaise for dessert, yeah. as, palette, as Russ would a have it. Cleanse, yeah, palate cleanse. Yeah, palate cleanse. Okay, he takes this uh, slowly and meditatively, a gentle ending to a fantastic program. Uh, you can spend the album marveling at the playing, but I'd advise you to just enjoy what you're getting here because it's very rare. Um, again, not for purists, but just for lovers of great piano playing. This is really uh, staggering and thoroughly enjoyable. I thought. Yeah, I've been listening to it since it came out. As a matter of fact, um, well, I've, on the various systems that I listen to, mm -hmm. uh, I don't 
I download our playlist every week so that I have it like <laughs> on my you know phone to go and listen to headphones and uh, everything else if I listen on my main system or whatnot. But this, as soon as it came out, I had to download it. Because um, we like him a just lot. Just because yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I listen to it on Deezer, uh, when you have those really short movements, uh, yeah. the gapless play playback uh, usually works. But when you have so many of short tracks... <laughs> Uh, sometimes it does variations. Yeah, it's so, so I didn't want to yeah. lose or have any extra gaps in there, and uh, so it's been, you know, downloaded um, and listening to it. And yeah, I'm not uh, a purist when it comes to uh, this, but I'm just a fan. Me, of, me neither. Uh, I'm a tr fan of Trifonov, and uh, so as usual, what he brings to everything he plays, I thought, is a beautiful touch. Uh, wonderful kind of tone colors associated with that touch. He can sort of, you know, make a single piano sound like a different instrument when he wants to. Uh, elegant phrasing. And then I thought with all of these works, and especially in The Art of the Fugue, he, he's got a nice uh, variety in the tempos and dynamics. Not too much, but just enough to make contrasts so that you don't get sort of uh, lulled into a submission in the longer works. He keeps it right. very interesting uh, there. And as I uh, alluded to before, uh, what I liked about his romantic works is that uh, he never played them over, overly emotional. Uh, you know, and I and, like that uh, about him in general. Yeah, I like and I like that music, here too. You know? It's a completely different style. Uh, I feel like he adds just enough... I don't feel that it's too much, uh, and so I guess now that I hear him in a completely different, you know, time period and style, I I like, you know, that characteristic of his playing, uh, no matter what he's approaching, um, you know. Yeah, and it's so, an inventive, bold program as well. Like, yeah. uh, no, no one else would come up with something like this, I don't think. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think we're blessed to have a player like him. Uh, he's right. everything I've heard from him. I pretty much have enjoyed so far and yeah, I'm too. glad that he's you know I, it has to be a lot of pressure as someone that has as much you know attention on him as him this has to be something he really wanted to do because I think you know with the purists and the other great recordings of these works that it's going to be compared to he had to have enough you know sort of um, determination and belief that you know the way he was going to do these was going to add something to the existing body of recordings of them. And uh, I enjoyed it. And I'm, you know, I just think, okay, what's he going to tackle next? And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I just want to say, oh, by the way, the Art of Fugue, you should mention, they, they were fairly gapless themselves. Mm. Um, he doesn't really pause much between the, um, in fact, he doesn't pause. Like he'll right. hold one of the notes and then he'll start the next fugue, which also would be, uh, I guess, a kind of sacrilege to some people. I want to, I want to say what my feeling is about, this kind of, uh, you know, about purity in music in general. Um, if you're going to keep going for, I think, the same, you know, this this perfect approach and everybody's kind of getting closer and closer to it, that's really exciting for scholars only. I don't think the the general listening public is going to get involved in that. I'm perfectly happy to hear um, just sort of even odd interpretations of uh, famous works. As long as it's not something that everybody starts doing. And then we lose the purest approach. Right. You know, once right. that starts happening, I'm going to start panicking and saying something about it. But I don't think we have that issue. There are plenty of uh, scholar scholar keyboardists out there who are um, 
keeping the uh, what's, yeah. what's the expression I'm looking for here? <laughs> they're they're keeping the flame burning. I think of this maybe. in a similar way that I think about religious type of things too. Yeah, um, it's very interesting that um, the sort of um, human elements, the human. Right sort of a sullying of religion is the same across <laughs> religions in different cultures. Um, I think that's true. And, it's, you know, looking at different religions, uh, you know, here in Japan and then things that I've, you know, comparing to Western culture and then historically, it's the same ugly heads that always pop up. And, you know, there's a, there's a right place for orthodoxy and tradition. Uh, that's important. Uh, right. At the same time, I, I feel that way too. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, this happens in all genres of music, right? You have the staunch, sort of, you know, uh, conservative uh, listeners who always want, you know, that music to play it in a certain way. It's even in mm -hmm. like you know, look at like blues music, for example. Right. You have like a lot of interesting people like Robert Cray, uh, Keb Mo, mm -hmm. who are yeah. really good blues musicians, but. They're not afraid to, um, you know, do something more modern or mix other styles with it. And that really makes some people angry. You know, why don't they just play? Right. <laughs> why don't they just right. stick with this? It's the same thing. If if he were to do that, do we really need another recording of this kind of music? Do we need another one in the same style so we can compare the minutia of if it's as good as... Some? No, we don't, really. I don't think so. Um, so yeah. I think uh, if we have a great talent, like uh, Trifonov, I think. Uh, let's see what his interpretation is, and let him let him take the chance. And you know, there's going to be some misses here and there with you know even great performers. But that's what makes it interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't think there are any misses here. This no, is definitely what he wanted. So, no. <laughs> yeah. But even if everyone doesn't like it, who cares? I mean, that's one thing I look. You know, even with like, you know, especially with pop musicians, my thing is mm -hmm. if I like everything they've done, eventually it gets boring. Because that right. means the boundaries are too narrow, and they, they um, found a formula, sort of yeah, repeating that formula. Yeah, and it's pretty soon it's gonna everything's gonna start to sound the same. I think that can happen in any genre too. So, yeah, I applaud you know revisiting or having a new take on things that are established and shaking things up a little bit. I don't think this goes too far with it. Uh, I, I think, think anyone so would enjoy it. Um, I certainly did so. Bring yeah, it on. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the idea the idea about fugues is that all the voices are supposed to be like evenly played, and he's definitely like terracing them, you know, yeah. to, so that you can make them all out. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fine though. It's it's more exciting, really, in a way, to hear it played that way. Then you can go back to another one, and that's yeah. where they are actually played the way scholarship says it's supposed to be, and then you, you, you hear it with new ears. I, I think this this serves a purpose yeah. that way as well. All right, on to um, our second classical release um this is also from uh i think in the autumn or yeah the autumn it would be the escher string quartet uh playing string quartets by samuel barber and charles ives two american composers speaking of that i need a haircut when when are the barber shops open again oh sorry oh god yeah oh barber oh that's right oh, you always catch me with those gotcha all right gotcha. i had a <laughs> I actually had a joke about him too, like uh, Samuel the Barber, you know, like Conan the Barbarian. Oh, right, right. Yeah, Samuel <laughs> the Barber. The barber. <laughs> no, a new work by Samuel the Barber. Okay, well, Samuel Barber. Okay. Yes. Obviously, there was a barber in his family somewhere. It would be ironic if there wasn't, wouldn't it? Be anyway, interesting. Yeah. this is on the Beast label, and it's an SACD. If you buy the um, 
the nice. phys- physical uh, disc. Now, I should just mention an SACD, um, a commercially released SACD will play on a CD player. It's got three layers of recording on it. There's a CD layer, and that'll just play in your ordinary CD player. Then there's a two-track SACD layer, and my personal favorite, the 5.1-track CD layer. The point one is the woofer, the subwoofer. Uh, um, and uh, it's, you see, you get these three different kind of, I guess, versions of the same performance. It's kind of nice. Um, we, we, you and I are actually big fans of a DSD recording like the Super Audio CD. I think it sounds a well, bit different than the CD part. Maybe. It's a little I don't more know. warmth. My feelings have changed over the years uh, yeah. listening. I mean, I've had SACD for a long time. Mm. Uh, all I can definitely say with it is when they bother to um, put most things in classical music on SACD, and it, if... If yeah. it was a native DSD recording, which I think is is a really important part, then usually the care yeah. taken in the recording by the engineers has been top-notch. Whether right. or not the DSD actually sounds better or the SACD sounds better than the CD, uh, more important than that, and the most important thing in, I think, all of the recording, is that the engineers have treated it like their baby. Uh, yeah. They really cared about everything in the recording and usually uh on beast that's the case too uh, yeah because their recordings always sound good and uh that's true yeah and so and they release a lot of their yeah uh albums on sacd, SACD like a, the majority of them and if the ones that were you know because the thing with dsd is um and the reason you can't use it really for most other kinds of music is if you have to edit it, you can't edit it in the DSD. So you have to change it back to PCM. And then it's sort of a moot point. Uh, it's just sort of, right. you know, getting that label. So in, you know, sort of uh, classical music allows for more uh, pure recordings because it doesn't need to be processed and mastered, you know, in Al- so many although ways. Although so. that is done. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> is done. To say. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I think, you know, in any style of music, and that's the reason I think you know so much of the the older recordings were really great in both classical and mm-hmm. jazz because uh, they were more organic and captured more of the room sound uh, right. with the musicians not being isolated. They just had a limited number of microphones and uh, it went down and they took it with uh, warts and all. Uh, but you got that great natural, uh, you know, character of uh, spatial things well that seems to be it's debatable some people will say it's not different i don't in some cases i really think those dsd recordings capture some spatial quality uh is it because Mm. of the format or just because of the you know the attention paid to the recording process i don't know uh but some Mm. of them do sound really good uh yeah yeah and this is really good label for sound quality beast yeah check that out beast does beast. that stand for something, by the way? I'm not sure. I think it's um, I think it's just beast, like what the French say when. Um, oh, okay. It's not a French label when they want an encore. Oh, they say beast. Because it's beast. like capital letters, yeah, capital letters, yeah. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, they're not a French label though. I think they're hmm. they're Swedish or they're some they're some Scandinavian one, maybe Dane. I'm not sure, huh. but they're they're somewhere up in the north there. <laughs> okay, I didn't look that up. Anyway. First, we have um, Samuel Barber, 
Samuel the Barber. <laughs> Samuel Barber's only string quartet in B minor opus 11. This might surprise some people. Um, this is this is the origin. The middle movement of here is the um, is the piece that became the adagio for strings. Uh, one of the most famous pieces there is. Um, right. It started life as the middle movement of this string quartet. So you're hearing the original version here. Uh, let's get to that in a moment. Um, this piece was composed in 1936 when Barber was only 26 years old. That mm. means he composed the Adagio for Strings, one of the great classical works of the 20th century and really of all time, um, when he was 26. Oh, man. Wow. All right, so the this this piece, all right, I'll talk about it more when we get to that movement. The first movement, Molto Allegro and Appassionato. This is a three-movement work. Um, this starts with a big unison upward melody. Uh, the rhythm continues for the opening theme. There's a huge pause before the second quieter theme. Uh, it's sensitively played. Um, and also, this is another um, performance that doesn't gush. Like we were talking about how Trifonov kind of is a bit more restrained. This particular ensemble, the Escher String Quartet, is restrained as well. Um, th these, this work could, you know, have a lot more. You could milk like, it uh, more. Yeah, yeah, you could milk it more. Now, th so that's going to be your taste, whether you like this uh, version better or uh, like a a more a more milked one, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have something about cows in the uh, title yeah, for this um, maids of milking episode. Or something, yeah. The milk <laughs> <laughs> milkmaids or something. I don't know. Yeah. All right, milk it, baby. That could get your cream for your polonaise. Uh, Ooh. When you put it you know, in yeah. yeah, we got all the cream. We had a milk theme here today yeah. that we're creating out of nothing. So I don't know. Okay, and this um, yeah, hearing this uh, had me already anticipating the famous second movement because I feel like we're in good hands here. Uh, there's something hymn-like about the harmonies and the chords in the first movement. Uh, some of the long-held chords already anticipate the famous climax of the second movement. He's setting us up. But as we know from the Adagio for Strings, he doesn't have... Uh, he doesn't have to set us up in order for that movement to make its impact, because we've heard it a million times now. Uh it's hard to hear this with uh, fresh ears because you already know what's coming in the second movement. I keep trying to imagine what it would have been like for the uh, first audience. It's an interesting, highly enjoyable, and involving movement. It should. It's a shame this string quartet isn't played more. Uh, I wish the quartet were played more for this reason, but I do have an issue with it, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, not with the first movement, though. Okay, second movement, Molto Adagio. This is the famous work that was um, later orchestrated for a string orchestra with the title Adagio for Strings. Um, here, let me tell you a little bit about that first. Um, Arturo Toscanini first performed it in a nationwide broadcast, so it became famous overnight. Um, that version was also broadcast at the death of FDR, uh, the, the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and at the uh, funeral of... Um, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It says here the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Mm. I, I don't know what that means. Maybe with the images of all of that. Uh, David Lynch also used it at the death of the Elephant Man in his film. <laughs> and it was also used as a recurring musical theme in Oliver Stone's movie Platoon, which is really what right. gave it new life for our age. So it's just ubiquitous. We've heard this lot a lot of times. Uh, the string quartet version is rarely heard, sadly. Um, the sound is a bit more anemic than the full-throated orchestra arrangement, but um, like I said, it could. I think this would have benefited from a bit more uh, mm. milking. But it's um, 
they're very attentive to the the form and the the tone and it's sort of um it again it's a little held back and for lovers of form and things like that would really like this interpretation uh, it's of a piece with the rest of the quartet the way the whole thing is played so we'll have to cleanse our ears and minds for this uh, textures are of course much cleaner and clearer since we're only hearing four instruments and the approach to the big central climax is rather understated, but it builds up nicely. Uh, the ensemble doesn't dig deep, but that's not what they're after here. They're after balance, mm -hmm. and I think they achieve that. And again, they're a bit restrained in, in uh, this entire work. Uh, they're more concerned with fitting the movement into the whole. Harmonic detail rings out, uh, not as powerful as the orchestral version, uh, but the lines are well judged. I personally thought that the first violin misjudged the volume at the climax because it comes out like a lot louder than the rest of the instruments. I, you know, I don't. Yeah, it must have been intentional because uh, that's the one. That's what they went with. Um, it it kind of sticks out. I thought. Um, that said, though, it's a fine, deeply felt rendering of the movement. Okay, now we come to the problematic third movement. It's really a continuation of the second movement. It's only two minutes long. Um, and it's labeled Presto. And it's really a repeat of some material from the first movement. So it's almost like the two movements, the, the first movement and this last section, or like a picture frame for the middle. Mm -hmm. He already knew he had something great with the uh, the Adagio movement. Um, he Barber had a hard, hard time finishing the quartet uh, since he didn't know how to follow up the spectacular second movement. As I said, he knew it was pretty great. Uh, the work was premiered in two movements, so it just ended with that. Uh, <laughs> he originally had a lively jig-like allegro molto rondo in B major, uh, preceded by a slow introduction. And we're going to hear that in just a moment. Well, we're not going to hear it here. You're going to hear it when you listen to this album because it's the fourth <laughs> track. It was well-received when it was finally premiered a few months after the two-movement version, but Barber didn't like it. And I think that's a shame because I liked it. Mm. And published the quartet as a two-movement work in 1943. Um, before publishing the quartet, though, in 1943, he took material from the first movement and attached it to the end of the second movement, making the second movement uh, a, a two-minute movement. Well, let me see. Um, he made the second movement have two parts, basically. So this two-minute movement really is just an extension of the second movement, putting the first movement theme at its end to frame it. So you can think of the entire string quartet as like a big ABA ternary form movement, I guess. Um, what's the point of extending it this way if we know that the Adagio strings are so well? He shouldn't <laughs> have even done that. So I find this version problematic. Now, the original third movement can be heard on track four. Um, I like the way this starts. It's got a slow, lilting melody. I had never heard this before. This was the first time. Uh, the faster part is bubbly and enjoyable. Uh, it's a real contrast to the second movement, and I liked that a lot, too. It kind of takes it away from us a little bit. And a welcome one at that, because the second movement is so powerful. Um, I guess this movement as a whole doesn't balance the powerful second movement. Um, it probably needed to be longer, but I thought it was really enjoyable. I kind of wish he had kept this and maybe made it a little longer so that all yeah. the tension gets released by the end in the whole quartet. But there you go. Samuel Barber, String Quartet. Give it a listen. Yeah, I like Okay. I yeah, like this one. Um, everyone knows that melody. Um, I hadn't listened. Maybe I, maybe I have a recording. So I hadn't listened to it in a long time uh, as a quartet. But um, yeah. overall, I thought it's a, it's a nice mixture of their interpretation 
it, it captures enough of the excitement, but as it's on a smaller scale, but it's quite beautiful uh, mm. in the way that it's put forth. So, um, yeah, kind of odd knowing the history of it and all the the painful yeah. decisions he uh, was fraught with making on on that. So, um, you know, we listen to it, you know, you think, oh, this sounds great. And you think that, you know, some the composer is so dissatisfied with uh, that he had all these permutations of, you know, different versions of it. So, you know, one uh, of the things that my experience as a, as a creative artist, um, this is true in songs and it's true in um, uh, writing as well. I have that book, Extreme Music, and um, there are a lot of parts I wanted to cut out of the book. I was like, okay, what can I cut here? And I was, you know, I just kind of didn't cut much of anything <laughs> and put it out. And all the parts that people talk to me about are the parts that uh, that I wanted to cut out. It's like oh. almost uncanny. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the artist himself almost knows least about what's going to appeal about his work right. than yeah. the audience does. And then the parts that I thought were really funny and really great, uh, nobody ever commented on. So it's just my little enjoyment for myself, I guess. That always yeah. happens. It does. Bands often say the, the song they were going to cut from the album became the big hit and stuff like that. Well, the riskiest things become the best sometimes too. You know, yeah. I find in jazz music that way too. Um, these days with, um, you know, multi-tracking and overdubs, musicians can go back and if they, they clammed something, you know, uh, clam is a mistake we say. Clam is jazz, a good yeah. word. Uh, you know. You, clam, you, clam is for brass though, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah we say it was trumpet mm. players. Yeah, if you, so if you, you played something bad uh, and you say, oh, you know, I didn't like that. Well, you just go back and punch in and redo it. Uh, mm. So you can get these note perfect, you know, uh, versions of things and they're boring. Uh, it's great to listen. You're subconscious it hears yeah. it too, even if you don't, you know. It's great to listen to those old recordings and now, you know, it, with reissues, they have multiple takes, but it's great to hear a player challenge themselves and paint themselves into a box. <laughs> like, yeah. and they're like, oh, now look what I've done and now you've got to play your way out of it. Sometimes yeah. it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that whole sort of, um, you know, uh, process of getting yourself right. into a tight corner and getting out of it uh is interesting on a small scale with uh jazz solo where it's you know improv improvised composition at the moment but also in classical music too where you're making these bigger decisions and you're wondering does this going to fit the whole you know arc of hmm. the composition and uh i think it's hard for the creator to know how the you know the audience is or the listener is going to take that uh, and it depends what you're listening for too. If you look, if you know, if you're a perfection kind of person. Uh, but if you want to be challenged uh, and find something interesting and try to understand the process of it, you know, even those, you know, maybe less than ideal things from the composer or writer's point of view can be the most interesting sort of things yeah. that bring you in deeper. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm glad we can hear these, you know, different versions or things that may have been left out historically but you know now you can hear right. them as as they were uh maybe not intended but uh at a previous at a previous sort of uh level this was the way it was going to go right always the higher level i think the mistakes come yeah. out at the, the when you're really playing by the seat of your pants you know yeah. <laughs> anyway getting back to the this album we have two string quartets by a composer that uh samuel barber absolutely hated Charles Ives. Was that Burl's he just kinda, brother? No. no nothing to Ives. do with... You know, I don't... You never know. He could, but they're, they're from different parts of the yeah, country, I think. Yeah, but I guess. Yeah. You never know. 
<laughs> I just say good. that there because... There could be some weird distant cousin. Because, because Christmas the, just ended. On the, yeah, on the last of the Christmas days, I was subjected to some poor lives. So Where was, was that? On the radio? Yeah, I had an internet radio going in. They the, put like that. Holly Jolly Christmas on yes. there or something? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> no no one ever covers that. Only him. It's really it's funny. Now that you, you say that, it's, it's interesting, yeah. It's true, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. you would think it's a popular song. People would, uh, hmm. you know, record it, but they don't. It's yeah, really strange. that's right. I've never heard another version of that. Yeah, what if Nora Jones had sung it? That would have been really odd. Well, that's, yeah, that's, my mind is trying to imagine that. I, yeah, I know. My mind yeah. just broke, too, yeah. just trying to imagine what that would sound yeah. like. Maybe she'll record it one day and let us Could know. Be. Anyway, Charles Ives, he... I, I actually should have looked up how many string quartets he wrote, but we get two of them here. He, I don't know. This may be it, but we get string quartets number one and two. First, string quartet number one, subtitled From the Salvation Army, a revival service. And that <laughs> word revival should give you a big hint about what's in here. This is a, a piece that's completely structured on um, uh, hymn tunes, American hymns that you would hear in Protestant churches at uh, the time of uh, Charles Ives was living. This was written uh, from the year... Okay, it's hard to date Charles Ives' works because he lied about the year he wrote them on. <laughs> he, he wanted them to seem older so that he was younger when he wrote them than they really uh-huh. were, so he predated them a lot. So we've got the dates for this, 1897 to 1909. So he probably was working on them more in 1909, but they're dated like 1897 right. or something like that. Um, this is a large-scale tonal composition. Now, that word tonal is very important because Charles Ives' music is often not tonal. Mm-hmm. His earlier works are. He was writing, he kind of sounded like Brahms a lot. But then when he got into his odd sort of experiments, that that went away. Um, I mean, why compose like Brahms when uh, Brahms is composing like that already? Yeah. You know? So, um, but I guess, you know, you start by Emulation. You know, imitating your masters or whatever. Okay. Okay. The thematic unity comes from the American hymns in this one. Um, whenever I hear Charles Ives' music, and this piece especially because it's so tonal, um, it makes me feel how far away from and out of touch with his era we are. <laughs> you know, this is America, right? The, uh, the mm-hmm. that he's yeah you know, of his era that he's really preserving in music, and for me, it just seems like this long ago far away place that just doesn't exist anymore um a lot of these themes i mean they would have been just familiar just from going to church every week i guess or just uh you know from singing groups or at the time or whatever but um i don't i don't know many of them Mm. well i know them because i've researched them but um i don't know them as you know just kind of floating around the culture sort of the way a lot of these songs generally do um, all of the hymn melodies and patriotic songs that he uses were in the air at the time, uh, and they're part of the cultural fabric, and they're not anymore, although they kind of, eh, some of them are, I guess. Most of them I didn't know until I researched them. You know, things like Turkey in the Straw, I mean, nobody knows that anymore. Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean, that comes up uh, a lot right. in his music, and in fact, it's going to come up in the second string quartet. I think it may come up in this one, too. Anyway, let's take a look. This uh, string quartet is a four-movement work. Uh, it starts with a chorale, and this is um, a fugue with a subject based on missionary hymn. Is that you can? By the way, when I mention these um, hymn tunes, you can hear them on uh, YouTube or on the internet. So 
if you're going to listen to this album with these um, quartets, you might want to do that. It'll make them more fun because yeah. it's you, you're kind of recognizing these melodies as though it's like something familiar out of this real kind of, in the second movement, more cacophonous sort mm-hmm. of, a, the second quartet, a more cacophonous approach. Here, this is actually pretty, um, you know, pleasant to listen to. Mm-hmm. So a chorale, um, as we know from Bach, is uh, is a, it's usually not a fugue. It's sort of, um, it's a hymn sung in church and it's chords. So whenever you hear a chorale, you're hearing just a progression of chords in four voice you know, harmony. And um, let's see. This one, the fugue is based on a missionary hymn and it's got a counter subject based on the hymn called Coronation. So check those out. Um they're very simple in structure and rather anthemic in tone. All the hymns are. They need to be sung by the congregation, so they're usually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, well, they're always simple. You can also hear a bit of Bach's organ work, Toccata and Fugue in D minor, in one of the episodes of this movement. That's the one that starts da 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 da. The really famous Toccata yes. and Fugue in D minor. He get he gets a little fragment of that in there. Uh, Ives later orchestrated the fugue and used it in his fourth symphony. After which he removed it from the quartet. So it, we, a lot of people know it as a three movement work. This is another. Boy, Americans just can't uh, be satisfied with <laughs> what they created here, right? So we're hearing the original version here, which is nice. Okay, we're hearing the original four movement version. Uh, the fugue was reinstated seven years after Ives' death, when the Ives scholar John Kirkpatrick persuaded editors to reinstall it. Ives scholar J. Peter Burkholder argues that the chorale movement should be included because it is linked to the finale through cyclic or cyclic repetition. So structure makes this movement necessary is what he's saying. Uh, It's strange to hear a hymn tune as a fugue subject, I have to say, uh, being taken up by the other voices in the quartet. It's very down to earth. The movement and the fugue is really a bit of a highfalutin style, and yet you're hearing all these down-to-earth melodies <laughs> in it. So it's kind of an odd juxtaposition. Uh, the movement kind of chugs along for long sections, and the melody starts ringing out of the different voices in a bell-like fashion towards the end. Okay, second movement. Prelude. <laughs> you would think that would be the first movement, right? I mean, it's called Prelude. Uh, and then Allegro. And... Um, this and the rest of the movement are in ternary form, so the second, third, and fourth movement are all ternary form, A, B, A. So it's going to be a middle section. Um, and then the, the opening will repeat at the end. Um, the quartet is romantic in tone. All movements use hymns as the starting point. I already said that. And the A section in this movement, the second movement, is based on Beulah Land, another one that I had to look up. I didn't really know that one. And the B section uses Shining Shore. So check those out. Ives does occasionally reveal the identity of the hymns melodically, but mostly they're varied in rhythm and harmony to the point where their identity only flashes out of the texture due to added or subtracted notes. It's kind of fun to be able mm. to uh, identify them when they go flashing by like that. It's got a, This movement has a charming opening with the melodic familiarity and down-to-earthness pulling me right in. Um, the, this, the Escher String Quartet is right at home in this music. They play it with a natural feeling. Third movement, offertory. Another kind of church word. The offertory is when you, uh, you offer money to pass the, the plate. Uh, yeah, they pass the plate around. Adagio Cantabile. Uh, the A section is based on, uh, Nettleton, which is a 
hymn named after one of its attributed composers. And the B section is based on uh, Shining Shore and Nettleton, so it's kind of they're combined here. Uh, this is similar in tone to the previous movement, but there's something Dvorakian about the middle section. It kind of sounds like the Ninth Symphony yeah. and some of the themes. Well, no, not the Ninth Symphony, the, uh, the American String Quartet by Dvorak. I think mm -hmm. that's, I don't remember which one that is, number 14 maybe. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of that. The American Quartet, yeah. Okay, by Dvorak. That's a beautiful work. Check that out. And uh, the fourth movement, postlude, Allegro Marziale, which means like martial or like, uh, mar I guess marching. It'd be like yeah. a marching army it is here. A bit march like, yeah. Yeah, the A section is based on Coronation again. Uh, another um, hymn called Web, which is um, named after its composer. And Fragments of Shining Shore. The coda at the very end combines Web and Shining Shore. Again, similar in profile to the previous two movements. I don't think there's enough variety in this quartet to sustain all that much interest, really. The second, third, and fourth movements are kind of similar. Um, except that the tunes are all catchy, so it's kind of fun to listen to. Uh, the performance is lively and sensitive. Big grand ending. All right. Track nine, Scherzo, Holding Your Own. This is a two-minute work. I remember hearing this live for the first time when I was in my 20s. I believe a string quartet played it uh, when I heard it at um, Harvard University at uh, the Sanders Theater. Yeah, memorable mm. memory from that era. Uh, the cello part in both A sections of this ABA form presents a quod libet. In Latin, that means anything and everything. Uh, it literally <laughs> means that as you like or that you right. like, things you like. Okay, uh, A quod libet is a composition in which well-known melodies or texts are presented simultaneously or successively, the result being humorous or displaying technical virtuosity. Um, there's a quote Liebet, the very last of the Goldberg variations is a quote Liebet mm. before we hear the theme again. And they would have been, again, themes, tunes famous in Bach's time that, of course, we don't know. Um, that's the case here, too. Except we kind of know these. A little bit. In rapid succession, we hear, now the, these just go flashing by, <laughs> uh, bringing in the sheaves, masses in the cold ground, my old Kentucky home, sailor's hornpipe, and the last one is streets of Cairo, which mm. concludes the A section with a polytonal cannon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, streets of Cairo, you know something about this one, right? This was, uh, well. this was uh, named after um, the uh, this woman who... I don't know if she was actually Egyptian, but she she uh, danced the the hoochie coochie. That's oh yeah, that's right. He, yeah, that's this. Yeah, he when he was on a a trip. What was it, was his uncle in his youth or something? Yeah, he, and he, he just got remembered a this hoochie coochie dance and yeah, it inspired this composition. Yeah, so. Should we think of a hoochie coochie as jazz, right? Because of um, yeah, hoochie coochie man. Oh, it's a blues and, uh, tune. Yeah, yeah it's a hoochie coochie yeah. man. Yeah, but, okay, uh, but it was apparently a, a dance. Okay, yeah. the quote Liebet well, and its accompaniment are pretty dizzying and off-kilter. This mm. is a very brief uh, movement at 1 minute and 20 seconds. All right, next, a work that obsessed me all week long. Jeez, uh -huh. and it, not because I particularly <laughs> liked it, okay, but I'll explain why. When, okay, the string quartet number two. It's been said that string quartets are like four people talking among themselves. That's what uh, was said about Haydn's string quartets. He uh, liberated the lower voices, and it sounded like they were all these genteel people at a dinner table having a witty conversation. So this is the ideal of the string quartet. 
Ives, <laughs> being American, yeah. uh, like us, uh, described this particular work as four men who converse, discuss, argue, fight, shake hands, shut up, then walk up the mountainside to view the firmament. This is a pretty <laughs> raucous work, yes. I have to say. Yeah. Um, um, the four men in question on. are constantly interrupting each other. It's kind of like having a conversation with people we know here in Kyoto. So I felt right at home in this. I guess this is what, what kind of obsessed me about this. Like it was New almost York, like a... New York and it's like New, New Jersey. York. New York and New Jersey yelling at each other across something. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait. All right. Uh, it's interesting. Um, Unlike the first quartet, it also features dissonant and atonal harmonies a lot. and fragmented melodies. Did you notice? A little bit. Yeah, you can't not notice. <laughs> you can't not notice. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a good a word to fall asleep to. Yeah. No. <laughs> Don't fall asleep to this. Okay, movement one, conversations and discussions. Uh, labeled 1911, probably composed 1913 to 1914. Hmm. Andante Moderato and moving to Andante con Spirito, Andagio Molto. One quick chromatic passage presents several patriotic tunes suggesting a conversation about politics. Um, I think, yeah, um, divisive politics between, maybe between the North. We've got to remember the Civil yeah. War was pretty get close your, to Ives' time. Get your Dixie in the middle there. You got Dixie, and you have uh, the other side singing Columbia, the gem of the ocean. Yeah. Columbia, the gem of the ocean. I don't know the rest of the words. <laughs> you have to be in the military to know this, a lot of these tunes. They they still play them in those marching bands. Uh, the beginning is atmospheric with uh, light, long-held tones evoking the heavens. At least I thought so. Then the voices start. They not only interrupt, they play over each other. So like one is still talking while the other one starts and they're kind of clashing. Uh, each in their own world. Uh, once the patriotic tunes come in, the effect is pretty funny. Uh, they both play at the same time. Now, I want to mention, like, if you find this kind of atonal writing really sort of oppressive to listen to, think about what he's evoking here. Just these people just talking at and over and mm -hmm. against each other. And it might become a little more enjoyable because you might kind of try to, like, you know, work out what's happening. So it could, it could yeah. be a fun work to Imagine listen to. Imagine a presidential debate or something like that. Oh boy, <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Imagine you're watching the news, like a big yeah. news station with, yeah. with like those four, when they have like multiple like yeah. uh, four heads, screens, four, four heads, heads talking, they're all arguing with each other. Blathering, yeah. 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 Second movement, arguments. So this is the, um, uh, I had a different um, uh, interpretation of this than the booklet did. Allegro con spirito. Um, the romantic second violinist is shouted down in a barrage of modernist dissonance by the rest. I actually didn't see it this way. I thought mm. that the second violinist was trying to uh, create, make peace with everybody. That's with what his I romantic felt. utterings. Yeah, I and the other were, three are just get there lost. Was, <laughs> there was like a, sort of a peacemaking. These folk melodies that are inserted between the conflicts, sort of like right. a, there's a intercessor who's sort of you know going in between but it, it doesn't succeed but that's that's how i got that sort of you know right me too back and forth of it yeah yeah towards the end we hear a stream of melodic fragments some american in origin again columbia the gem of the ocean uh marching through georgia masses in the cold ground masses in the cold ground that's a stephen foster tune right i want to say something about that in a moment and 
others borrowed from Tchaikovsky and Brahms symphonies. Mm. <laughs> okay. We also get a little bit of the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony yeah. in there, too. Uh, one of the fun things about music like this is recognizing the familiar themes as they pop out of the musical tapestry. Uh, this goes on for some time, this movement, and ends suddenly. By the way, the tune, Masses in the Cold Ground, is is a slave singing about his, his master by Stephen Foster. Um, the lyrics to this song, it's a really pretty melody. Uh, the lyrics, um, shall we say, haven't aged well. Um, but this song is, it's also famous in Japan because it was sung by um, school children with different words, naturally. Right. Um, it, 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 I think it has something to do with a, like a, a temple bell in a small village, is the, the words. Right. And um, if anybody's a fan of movies, you can hear the, um, the, the children in school singing this at the end of Ozu's film, uh, Tokyo Story. Mm. So uh, it's it's this tune, the Stephen Foster tune. It's really weird to hear. Uh, Japanese say, people often think that it's a Japanese song yeah. originally, but the melody is definitely American. That Stephen Foster is one of the most important composers important. of American music, and he yeah. was wrongly painted with a brush of a sort of a slavery supporting sympathizer, which was right. not true at all. Yeah, he, uh, he wrote was about just his writing, time. Yeah. writing yeah. an idiom of the. You know of his time, and uh, the he his contribution to American music is you know mm -hmm. one of the most important uh, in volume and in quality, and uh, right. you know that uh, you just can't say enough. Uh, he, and unfortunately, he did write a lot of songs. in his lifetime, yeah. he never reaped uh, you know much uh, economic or. Uh, you know, enough notoriety for what he did. Right. And uh, uh, I just want to say that because uh, I think you know, th his music lives on around the world and people don't even know that it's his music like the example yeah. you just said in Japan. So um, there's sort yeah. of like a lot of like a lot of Irv Irving Berlin melodies. They just seem like they've been they're as old as the hills. You know, they've just always yeah. been around like they're anonymous yeah. folk tunes, but they're not. He, uh, yeah. he wrote them himself. Yeah. All right. Okay. Last movement, the call of the mountains. This is where it all gets resolved. Nature dissipates the um, <laughs> uh, the arguments of of men. Oh, if only. See, the thing is, they've we've solved this problem now because everybody's now on their computers all the time, and they don't even notice nature's out That's there. Right. <laughs> so they're not going to go climb a mountain and uh, be amazed at uh, you know the call creation of the smartphone. <laughs> the call of the smartphone. So this this movement is now <laughs> eliminated from our mm. reality. Here's the solution you're looking for, America, right here right. in the third movement. Uh, Charles Ives gave it to you. Adagio Andante Adagio. This was composed 1911 to, 1914 and 1915. Uh, it's labeled as 1911 to 1913. So, Right. It's sunnier or something, okay? We have a clear statement of the hymn tune Bethany that merges into Westminster Chimes. You actually hear the uh, Westminster Chimes is what uh, Big Ben in London plays, so right. <laughs> you know that melody, right? Indeed. All are reconciled, but in the final bars, the viola offers a lone contradiction to the reconciling F major chord because they're Americans. They're never going to agree, really. <laughs> um, we're th and I love that little touch, actually, because it is so... It, it really does differentiate us from the rest of the world. We are unique in our 
well, one wonders now, but in our yeah. ability to have all these competing and contrasting opinions and yet still be able to get along, although that seems to be uh, falling away these yeah, days. Once was, to see. Yeah, once was. Yeah, we were once able to do that, <laughs> like when I was a kid. Um, we're talking about Americans, after all. There's a kind of weariness to the beginning of this movement. It gradually emerges into something more harmonically solid. When the hymn appears, it's in the middle of voices, as the lower voices trudge and the higher ones buzz like flies. Uh, you can just make out Westminster chimes in the middle voices. you got to be listening. Y- you'll hear it. It goes by fast, though. Uh, it's a long walk to the ending, but the sound shimmers when we get there, except for that ornery viola. This piece will give your ears a bit of a workout, um, but the last work really shows off the quartet's ability. It's well played. I got obsessed by this work because I was trying to like break it all down. I don't know, and I kind of yeah. Now I feel like I know it pretty well. It's not easy listening. Yeah, Ives is always a challenge. Well, some of his works are easier to comprehend than others. Right. Uh, the, See, but um, I find the early romantic ones to be a little boring really because you could know be boring, that yeah. was he's that was he's, he's adopting a european style there and here he's himself so i rather like that yeah as you say he's most interesting when he's um picking up on these sort of uh rich folk traditions of american music and then uh weaving them together uh to create something new uh so yeah the i i liked the first uh quartet um mm. Although, as you say, in our it was current, in our current era, you, you may not be able to listen to it with the same ears as people of the day because the well, apparently people of the day didn't hear it. These didn't get performed really yeah. until after um, Ives died. I mean, that was his intent or his inspiration, anyway. Uh, Unless he got second, a quartet to play it at his house or something. Yeah. I don't know. The second quartet is um, yeah, it's this is a challenge. So mm. if you're up for something intense to focus on, uh, this is. Uh, this, but this it does good, have a narrative. It does yeah. have, a, yeah, it has a narrative. And if you know what, if you read about what's, uh, you know, what's going on, that'll help out a bit too. And you understand this sort of conversation or argumentative discourse kind of thing. It becomes more fun, and then you can identify the sort of um, back and forthness and the various levels of it. So it's dense music. If you're in the mood for it, it can be a lot of fun. Uh, and as a sort of uh, uh, strategy of composition. I think it it's interesting, and it's it's more easily achieved in a quartet like this. You know, you're not going to do this with a full orchestra as easily uh, here, mm-hmm. so uh, it's easier to hear uh, the different kind of parts and the interaction between them. So it's 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 a difficult listen, but yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting at the same time as long as you're uh, ready for that uh, kind of thing. And I think that's sort of the, one of the appeals of Ives' music. Okay, finally. We were really going long here on the classical music tonight. Yeah. Um, we have a contemporary composer that we've actually already heard before. Uh, right. Chinese composer Xiaogang Ye, born in 1955 in Shanghai, China. This album is called Winter. Guess why I sat on it for so long. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's winter it's now. Cold and we're hearing there. this piece called it's Winter. Cold it's there cold tonight. out. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, recorded... Interesting by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra with two different conductors for different works, uh, Gilbert Varga and Jose Cerebrier. This is on the Beast label too, but this one is not an SACD. It's a CD, hmm. which is kind of odd. I wonder why they did that. Because you can't record anyway. in DSD in winter. 
Maybe it's that's what cold. it is. Or maybe in Scotland. I don't know. But um, this one, okay, so we heard um, Ye's um, piece, um, uh, Song of the Earth, paired with Gustav right. Mahler's. Okay, so those are famously Chinese poems, which um, Mahler set in a German uh, translation and really made it a Mahler work. It really mm. doesn't, you know, the, the poems are just there to add, you know, to the... Uh, the feeling whereas uh yeah decided he was going to take these back and kind of make them sort of chinese again which he did um and it was pretty interesting um i liked it enough but i, I liked it enough to want to hear more like to hear him sort of like on his own uh without the Mahler kind of sort of shadow you know or, or over his works and things like that so i wanted to hear these uh this um disc of shorter works and I, i've been sitting on this for quite a while simply because i figured oh, it'd be good to do this in the winter Okay. This came out some I guess in around September or so. Okay, first work. These are more um uh vocal works, The Song of Sorrow and Gratification, Opus 67, which was completed in 2012, uh written for bass, baritone and orchestra, texts by Li Shutong. Um I want to say something about the Chinese names. Beasts often will use the um Western rendering of the Chinese name. So Shaogang is the given name, and Ye is the family name. And the traditional way that Chinese people, as well as Japanese people and uh, Asians, I think, I guess most Asians, mm. um, would write their names, the family name first. So he'd be Ye Shaogang. But they're doing it the Western way, which is fine. But I'd like to call for consistency here. The texts are listed as being by Li Shutong. So they're given his family name first, Li. And Shutong, his first name. It's very confusing. Right. So sometimes if you get like, usually the two-syllable name is going to be the given name. But sometimes they'll have, you know, one-syllable names like Tan Dun, the composer. You know, so which mm -hmm. one is the, you know, if you're not Chinese, you're not going to know which one the uh, given name is. Anyway, so much for that. So anyway, Beast, please be consistent when you label these. Okay. Uh, Li Shutong was a monk. Um, his Buddhist name is Hong Yi. Um, and, um, so he goes by, the, you, you'll see poems by him under that name too. He was also an accomplished artist and poet. The performers of this are the, uh, bass baritone Sheng Yang, who we heard in, um, Song of the Earth. Um, he was the, he was the soloist in that. And he's, and the conductor in this case is, uh, Gilbert Varga. Um, the title um, the Song of Sorrow and Gratification is an allusion to Li Shutong's final written words, which were, <laughs> in Chinese, of course, worldly sorrows and gratifications are intertwined. It's a very what does Chinese that mean? sentiment. It doesn't yeah. help me at all. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, I guess it's his Buddhist nature coming out. He's just noticing wow. this. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't really help me gain nirvana though, but. Maybe if we meditate on it. Anyway, yeah. the texts are assembled from early poems reflecting the resentment, melancholy, and helplessness experienced by a young Li during a period of turmoil and humiliation in the history of China. That would be around 1901, 1902, when the British were there uh, wreaking havoc. Okay, this is before the Japanese went in <laughs> later. The 20th century was, a, was not a happy century for the Chinese. At least the beginning of it wasn't. 
All right, the first, um, this is a set of four songs. The first one is On a Sailing Boat at Dusk. Uh, the Beast recording does not give the Chinese names of these works, but you can, if you're Chinese, you can probably figure out what they are if you know the poems. Uh, the poems here are compact, as Chinese poems tend to be. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I have enough kanji to be able to kind of work out, like, from the English, like, what the Chinese is saying. And they really don't say much. They're just giving you images. And I guess you're supposed to, I guess if you know the language, you, you can do this more more easily. And I guess you just sort of fill them in with your imagination, you know? it's um, There's a lot of interpretation being done when these are translated into English. Mm. Um, the poems are compact, two-line sections, yet they say a lot, judging by the English translation. Um, this sounds like an atmospheric Western piece. Uh, Shen Yang, the bass baritone, and uh, has a big, rich, operatic uh, voice, uh, resonating, very impressive, very pleasing, too. Uh, the text unfurls very slowly in this work. Um, at the end, the text reads, I am sad and choked with sobs at the disintegration of my native... What does it say here? Lion. I wrote lion. It should be land. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So apparently Havoc is being wreaked when he was 21 years old. This last line bursts out. It's uh, It just really jumps out of the uh, texture. And then it subsides at the end with a sorrow. Movement 2. Qingming Festival in Tianjin, which is composed after here. Oh, this is a combination of two poems. Also, a poem called Composed After Hearing a Song on a Sailing Boat. Both of these poems are from 1901. Shen Yang has a bit of a Paul Robeson sound here, this really rich bass, really deep. Uh, long, drawn-out vowel sounds come out very musically. The composition has little bursts of orchestral color, like flowers opening in spring. I rather enjoyed that, the, the instrumentation around bloomed around certain words. Movement 3, Revisiting Sholan Pavilion. Uh, a poem written in 1902. And also uh, after Song Zhen's poem, Cottage Painting in the Southern Part of Town, written in 1900. Also, a fragmented line written in 1894. So this uh, combines three poems in the text. Uh, this moves a little faster. It has a chugging rhythm to it that we associate sort of with Chinese folk music a bit. The, so this one actually does sound kind of like the music sounds like it has some kind of Chinese quality to it. The fourth movement, Seventh Evening of the Seventh Moon, 1902, poem. This poem, like all of them, dwells on descriptions of visible nature to convey inner feelings. There's something lightly Mahlerian about the orchestration, uh, but not the melody, in this and the second movement. It ends with a gentle bell percussion, like a distant temple bell. It sounded really more like a church bell to my ears. You know, it sounded pretty Western. And Ye has spent a lot of time in the West these days. I think he's in Buffalo, New York now, or somewhere. Huh. Or maybe New York City by now. But he was in Buffalo for a while. Okay. Next piece. Track five. December Chrysanthemum, Opus 52B, for flute and orchestra. The flautist here is Sharon Bezali, Israeli flutist. And she now lives in Sweden, by the way. The conductor here is Jose Cerebrier. This was composed in memory of Ye's daughter, Nini, who passed away at 18 months. Very sad. Oh. The chrysanthemum withering in white snow represents pain and bitterness in traditional East Asian art and aesthetics. Well, in Japan, it represents the uh, the emperor, actually. Yeah. 
But this is China. This is different. Okay, the composer wants the work to instill a sense of looking across a snow-covered expanse and seeing faraway traces of life, arousing a hope for rebirth in people's hearts. Very kind of sad and positive, as mm. so many of these pieces are. It's a relatively tranquil, pretty piece, with occasional stabs from the orchestra, followed by annoyed bird sounds from the flute. That's how I heard them. <laughs> The flute makes some pretty original sounds at times. Uh, there's something like a double note created by the angle of blowing into it at one point that really stood out. It's pretty dramatic. This one has like um, a pitch-bending bassoon in it, too. It's kind of yeah. interesting, yeah. Yeah. Much of this piece has a bird-like quality to it. It's a lot of repeating, chirpy patterns. There's a brief ostinato pattern at three minutes, then another outburst from the orchestra. Uh, the orchestra seems to lead all the outbursts, so whatever they represent may be uh, the world coming in on him, and the flute reacts to that. So I'm guessing the flute is the origin, the uh, individual. I'm, I'm taking like a Beethoven uh, approach to this. The piece is a long series of brief episodes. It's a series of brief episodes, sorry. And it's brief itself at 8 minutes and 30 seconds. I liked the lower end of the orchestration a lot in this. There were a lot of intriguing sounds, like the pitch bending you mentioned. Uh, the double note flute sound is heard again one minute from the end. Um, this is a pretty interesting piece, actually. I thought it kind of captures the, the power and bleakness of winter in yeah. those dark sounds. Uh, it's like December... As the days grow shorter, that sort of darkness. Um, that's kind of the way I feel about Yi. I don't think he has... I, I don't get any memorable sense of melody from any of his compositions, really. But I get sort of uh, lots of colors and textures. Right. Uh, I was thinking I think the same thing. He's that, more of a... He's yeah. got a lot of Western influence in, in his yeah. um, um, his music. and. Yeah, so, I hear a lot, not only colors, but they're more like Malarian colors. They're not like Debussy. They're not pastels no, or French colors. No, no, they're not light at all. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah, and, um, but the, and these contrasts of uh, tones. He uses a lot of percussion very well to, to accent things. And uh, that, that's what I, re I remember those kind of things. But the sort of, um, I find the, the melodies are just, sort of things that carry me to the next sort of um, texture right. of orchestral combinations that he'll uh, create right. a mood with uh, rather than having a, you know, a memorable line that'll be humming afterwards or something. Although, we'll, we'll get to the very last piece on this disc. Oh, yeah, that's something completely that's, different. That's, that's it shows a what thing. he can do something yeah. else if he wants to. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. First, the title piece, Winter, Opus 28 for Orchestra. This is the only um, uh, work on the disc that, uh, on the album, that doesn't have a, um, a soloist. Uh, it was composed in 1988, and the conductor is Jose Cerebrier. Um, Ye has composed three works with the title Winter. You would think he'd call them Winter 1, Winter 2, Winter 3, well, wouldn't it, you? But it, I did read no. the notes that he was in Buffalo for a while and having spent a lot of time out there. You know, that's from like October to May. So, you know, uh, you got a lot of time oh, to compose yeah. wintry works. Yeah, yeah Buffalo is, is it's brutal. Yeah, <laughs> the, the snow in the parking lot's there till May. So, you know. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Buffalo, New York, everybody. All right, this is the first this is composed this is the first of the three works called Winter that he wrote. It's composed in Buffalo. It's an expression of the composer's unusual for him 
dark and gloomy mood at that time. Uh, but then again, wouldn't we all feel that way if we were living in Buffalo? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. The this, is the, this... this is the one that I thought had that that pitch bending oh. kind of thing in it. Not the oh. not the December one. Yeah, the December is pretty much all flute. Um, it's flutey. But, uh, yeah, it's bird like too. Um, he really can't yeah with those that breathy out. fingerings and things. But here you got more, and you got more brass in the in the winter one too. So yeah, the opening uh, of this piece is quiet and sounds frozen. Um, <laughs> it's long held tunes. I think it's a bassoon playing the melody. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's the yeah. that's what I was talking about before. It's not in the right. not in the December chrysanthemum, but in the winter piece. Right. This piece is very atmospheric and barely moves harmonically. Uh, any mel melodic fragments are played over icy, long-held textures. I'm getting the impression here and from the vocal pieces that this composer likes the long-held tone. Um, by the midpoint, strings start an upward climb with textures like the textures are sound like uh, bare tree branches reaching mm. skyward and the music gets more active and dramatic and it reaches a big crescendo at about the 8 minute and 30 second mark and there's some nice chimes at the end um, track 7 this is probably the piece that impressed me the most and it's the one he wrote it's the earliest one he wrote when he was a student this was his graduation piece The Brilliance of Western Liang Opus 16 1983 for violin and orchestra. The violinist is Wei Lu, and the conductor is Gilbert Varga. Um, he went to the Central Conservatory of Music in Beijing, and this was his um, graduation piece. It was premiered by An Hong at the time, and the orchestra of the China National Opera House, conducted by Hu Bingshu. Western Liang was a 5th century kingdom in northwest China. This work has two main sources of inspiration, ancient musical scores, from the Tang Dynasty, uh, found in the Mogao Caves in Dunhuang, which is the capital of Western Ling, and the standing Buddhist statues in the Majishan Grottoes near Xi'an, both along the ancient Silk Road. I hope I'm saying all these names right. I'm just going by the Roman <laughs> writing of them. Okay, this is an attractive piece, well orchestrated. Yeah, we don't have any pleasing. Chinese listeners anyway, because we're banned in well, China. Well, not, not ones in China, <laughs> anyway. We might have some in the U.S. Yeah. We'll have to see. This is an attractive piece, well orchestrated, with some pleasing metal percussion punctuation. The violin line is highly melodic and romantic, so a romantic setting of Tang Dynasty-type melodies, which I rather enjoyed. They were kind of, they were very appealing. It's the long, it's the longest single movement work on the album at 16 minutes 14 seconds. There's a dance quality to the segment at around the five minute mark, and then that evaporates into something more dramatic within a minute. So a lot, again, a lot of like just changing textures in this piece. There's a nice metal percussion part just past nine minutes 30 seconds, very gentle. That sounded like something from his his Chinese. Uh, um, background to me. There's a very pretty melody after this, uh, a repeating short phrase that sounds like something Mendelssohn would come up with in his songs without words. Uh, the piece builds to an exciting, powerful ending with timpani and gongs, and a pretty overwhelming work for a graduation piece. Give this guy his degree. This is a really good work. Yeah, this Amazing. one I thought, yeah, it's, uh, of all the pieces here, it's got the most uh, interesting contrasts and... Uh, most interesting tonally there's all kinds of interesting yeah. things going on uh, yeah and, and yet it's uh, his graduation piece Go he yeah, just threw and, all of his uh, knowledge at the time into this piece you've got this um, you know 
violin thing going on, huge clusters of orchestral chords. Uh, again, a lot of percussion use, uh, chimes and other things going on. Um, yeah. Uh, he's uh, yeah. using all of the tones uh, available in an interesting way. Um, yeah. And we end... Yeah, and oh yeah, we end uh, cinematically here, kind of. We end with a real crowd pleaser. This is the dessert in this program. Starry Sky, Opus Fifty Six, for piano, children's voices, women's choir, and orchestra. This is this is for piano. The pianist is Noriko Ogawa, Japanese pianist, who's um, playing on the um, clarinet and um, piano um, French chamber works on beasts. Last year, we really enjoyed mm. Royal Scottish National Orchestra Chorus, and Jose Cerebre is the conductor. Okay, now, this is a piece that most of our listeners know because or have heard. If you watch the, um, the Beijing Olympics back in 2008 with that gigantic opening with all those percussion elements, at right. one point during that opening ceremony, uh, the, the piano came out and Lang Lang played this piece. Um, so that was the premiere at the uh, Beijing Olympics in the opening ceremony. And it's a real crowd pleaser. Um, it starts quietly and meditatively with quiet orchestral comments on each piano line. This piece is very warm and made for the public. The piano lines are modal, probably Chinese modes. I mean, I really don't know. Uh, but the women's chorus comes in. It's wordless, like in Debussy's uh, nocturne titled Sirene. Um, the following string melody melody after that is warm, big-boned, and crowd-pleasing. It's nice to have this work on a CD and in a complete form because mm. it was o- only fragmentary at the Olympics. I don't think they played the entire thing. I think he finished it later. It's a piece of history from that magical summer. Um, Ogawa plays the piano part beautifully. In fact, it sounds fun to play with its constant flurries of modal figuration. It's an uplifting work, one to make you optimistic about the future, and it was said at the time that its purpose was to show the world the optimism of the Chinese. Do you think they're, chi- they're optimistic? I don't know. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think Maybe the government's optimistic. I don't I know. I know a lot of young say. Chinese, and they're pretty bright and optimistic, more so than Th- even Japanese. More so than yeah. the Japanese kids are, The yeah. government, I, I don't know, so. but that's a different thing. Um, yeah. But uh, I think uh, young young Chinese people have uh, kind of optimism and uh, exuberance that I find, uh, you know, uh, interesting and encouraging. Yeah. So I'm sure there's something to tap into there. Yeah, I thought this, this one, this, yeah. the, the way that, um, you know, it's a simple kind of, this kind of pentatonic melody almost, uh, mm. and then building with the choir and the string theme. But I, I thought, you know, I didn't think there would be that much to uh, to get out of this. But mm. uh, he does, you know, he he keeps it going for a long time, and then he, he finds... Uh, different ways to build it with the rhythms and then interesting orchestration and brass coming in. Uh, so he, he really, um, you know, with the structure here, it becomes more than I thought would be possible from that simple theme that I had heard. Like you say, we, we know this in a very shortened kind of uh, form, but yeah, it's pretty impressive uh, 
you know, he could easily do movie soundtracks if he can uh, do this kind of thing. Uh, so. He probably will. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, man, a, yeah. that's a it's a stopping point for um, yeah. Chinese for just composers in general. Yeah, they, they just go for that. Yeah, so it's called Starry Sky. I would uh, give that an immediate listen. I think it'll uh, lift you up. It's a really nice piece. Yeah, I'm kind of you know we this is the second uh, recording we've done of his, and as I said, I don't. I, I don't think it'll find, be the last for a while because I feel like we've got him. Yeah, you know, depends I, what as he I puts said, out. I don't. I don't find much uh, memorable that sticks with me in the melodic yeah. development, but I do like that. What I like is uh, the sense of uh, contrasts of different mm-hmm. elements, and then the full use of the orchestral colors and different kind of textures. I find that a very interesting uh, sort of palette of, you know timbres and rhythms and he uses percussion really well too um so i find that sort of um kind of picturesque painting of sound very uh um something interesting in his style um and so yeah, yeah. That, that keeps me interested more than sort of following the the melodic lines or anything else all right and that's it for classical music this week on to jazz. It's jazz time. Jazz time. Right. It's time to lighten up. Yeah, I after think all so. this serious music. The, the jazz is not wow. Well, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if we have light. We have, I think we've got well, some pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, so we've got an, a uh, <clears throat> an international program that's going to test our pronunciation skills too. I uh, actually so, did research. So okay, I'm so ready. you can help me I'm out ready. here. I um, can help you out with uh, languages that. Um, in which vowels are expensive. Um, yeah. So we'll start. <laughs> they have a wheel of fortune. I mean, how and, many uh, consonants can you put yeah, in a I row know. there? Exactly. Oh. Anyway, Just, we'll start. We'll start with the easy one. We're going to go American to begin yeah. with. Uh, and, to go with uh, the Ives and Barber, Samuel yeah. the Barber, and we're going to feel the love. Great title. From? Feel the Love Baby with a great name. You got to love this guy's name. Farnell Newton. Yeah. That's a good name. And, he was uh, born in Miami, I checked out here, but he lives somewhere else now. Yeah. Um, he was yeah. born in Miami. Uh, he's a big boy, too, if you see his picture. Uh, <laughs> he's a big guy. Uh, and uh, he was born in Miami. He was uh, he attended Philadelphia High School for the Creative and Performing Arts. Uh and, That's right. He's uh, in Philadelphia now, I think. Right? Uh, I think he's now he's in uh, Portland, Oregon. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, he's been all over. Uh, he did study at. Uh, uh, let's see, where did he study? Oberlin in Ohio. Mm, and, nice. Uh, yeah, he has uh, also has a, a master's degree in jazz studies and performance from Portland State in 2008 and since then he's recorded and played with lots of uh, performers including Aretha Franklin James Moody uh, let's see Stevie Wonder even uh, Mm. Carl Denson and uh, Galactic the group and uh, here he's with some uh, performers we've heard before and we like very much yeah and other uh, favorites of the yeah. podcast yes art hirahara on piano yeah uh, who we're big fans of boris one Kozlov. of our picks of one of our biggest albums of the uh, year last yeah. year one of our art favorites Hirahara. yeah boris uh, Kozlov. Kozlov, yeah. who we've heard a number of times with uh dave kikoski 
right. and others. And uh, another recording, we've heard these three together. I guess they're often on this uh, Positone Records, uh, the label uh, Farnell Newton's on here. And uh, the great uh, drummer and percussionist Rudy Royston. Uh, and he, he, so we've done a number of recordings. These fellows are featured on together. Uh, and on this album, uh, Newton has got a bunch of different sax players uh, yeah. sitting in. We've got Braxton Cook, uh, Jaleel Shaw, and uh, Patrick Cornelius on alto sax. We've this also made got, it hard for me to follow. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many different yeah. sax. We've got Brandon Wright on tenor sax. Uh, also, in the rhythm section, we've got uh, Joe Strasser on drums on three tracks, uh, swapping out for Royston. And uh, let's see. Also, uh, Michael Deese, who we've heard before, the trombonist. Uh, we featured one of his recordings, sits in on a track, too. Uh, so we've got uh, interesting combination of personnel. And uh, so we'll get a feel of uh, Farnell Newton's trumpet playing. And uh, this is a fun album. Uh, we start out with a track, uh, an original by Newton called the title track, Feel the Love, which is a tribute to one of his uh, music school professors. It's a Latin post-bop tune. Uh, this is just for quartet, so rhythm section in uh, Newton on trumpet only. It's a nice funky piano intro by Hirahara. Mm -hmm. Busy Drumming by Royston. Uh, Newton brings uh, on the Freddie Hubbard-like melody here. And uh, it's one of those tunes where the B section changes to swing in contrast to the Latin beat. So that adds a bit of excitement to it. Uh, Newton is up straight away for a solo. He shows off some nice post-bop chops on the trumpet. And uh, Hirahara gets a solo next, and he plays with a lot of rhythmic intensity. Hirahara sounds really good on this album, so it's a nice uh, opening track. Yeah, I, um, I felt like uh, Hirahara really was the uh, standout on this yeah. record, mm -hmm. it, just in general. And also, um, this particular track, that kind of swinging rhythm that just keeps coming back, I mean, yeah. it's part of the, the whole structure of the the, yep. the chord changes and stuff yeah I mean <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine you're a soloist and you know that's coming and you're playing yeah. this wind thing it's that it must be a really funny uh, thing to navigate yeah that was sort of like one of those post-bop type of things that got built in and it always mm. sets up a great kind of tension you know you can hear it in a lot of different groups and you know a good drummer uh, will set that up you know like an art Blakey press roll or something and then you get into that hard swing and then you're back yeah. to the um you know the latin beat yeah. uh it's a great it it's still exciting to this day to yeah. hear really it always kind of works and, yeah. and so we're gonna hear it a lot actually on this album yeah, and this later album. too yeah. yeah um because i want to also mention that. yeah this album is called feel the love and i think that's a really nice uh, title to start the new year with i think feel the is. love let's feel the love in 2022 uh, the uh, the other interesting fact that I noticed looking up Newton because I didn't know much about him is uh, that uh, he's a father of five children. Wow. So he's got a lot of love, I guess. He also has his own <laughs> he's jazz. Yeah, he's got his own jazz radio show uh, uh -huh. on uh, K KMHD Radio too. So yeah, I don't know how he finds the time to do all this stuff, but uh, he's got a lot of love and uh, comes yeah. through on this recording. Maybe that's uh, what, it, what it is. Another love-themed tune, track two, Affectionately, Roy. 
uh, tribute to Roy Hargrove, another Newton original. Um, this one has like a rhythmic bass intro that becomes a riff. Here we've got uh, Braxton Cook on alto. He doubles the melody with Newton. It's that kind of easy riding but funky tune. If you know Roy Hargrove's uh, uh, sort of style, uh, he had an album called Ear Food. This sort of is evocative of that uh, recording. Uh, Cook solos first. He's got a light and breezy tone. Uh, Hirahara gets a short solo, and then Newton is up. He gets some funky half-valve effects in his lines on this one. Uh, a nice tribute to the uh, recently, not recently, I don't know how long it is. Uh, he's no longer with us, mm. uh, Roy Hargrove. Um, who I, one went of the things I, I went to yeah, see. Yeah, one of the things I noticed awesome, about this yeah. particular... Oh, I finished that sentence, I'm no, sorry. sorry. Yeah. I had uh, yeah. met him when I was in high school at uh, a music festival. And then when he came to Osaka some years back, I went down to uh, see his group. I was hoping to get a chance to talk to him, but uh, it didn't work out uh, that night. And then he's no longer with us anymore. So anyway, rest in peace, Ron Harper. Yeah. Missed opportunity. Yeah, I thought this, but this piece again, it, it it's got this. It's pretty wide open. So this, as a so, I always think about this too. The soloist, you have a lot of space. You could do a lot, and then there are these like really all of a sudden there'll be these like complex, quick chord changes mm. where you're kind of it's it's almost like kind of squeezing down a hallway as far as a soloist goes because you you, know, you don't have much right, right, many yeah. options of what you can play and when the chords are like that. Yeah. So you you really have to know when those are coming. You got to be ready yeah. to get in. There. Yeah, I, just, sort of I just feel like that's tricky too. Funky and relaxed and then a mm. sort of twist into a different place. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, track three, a John Schofield tune, I'll Catch You. Uh, this is a funky drum intro here, joined by bass. Uh, now we've got uh, Julio Shaw on alto. He joins in with Newton on the funky melody. Uh, it kind of features these uh, interval gaps in the melody. Uh, and this one also has a switch to a swing section in the melody. Uh, Newton solos first on this one. It's got a lot of bluesy licks uh, over the minor, the minor uh, modal blues changes in this tune. Uh, Shaw's up next. He works in and out of the chord changes. He gets some kind of intense spots uh, with his tone. Uh, he brings on a nice edge uh, before he simmers it back down. And uh, on this one, the rhythm section really locks in together. Uh, and you'll notice that uh, Hirahara's chord voicings stand out uh, on this tune um, as well. Uh, four is another Newton original, A Child Not Yet Born. Uh, interesting mm -hmm. title. It's a slow ballad with a pretty melody. It shows off Newton's rich tone. Uh, Kozlov has a heartbeat-like uh, bass pulse that sounds good underneath everything. Uh, we've got Joe Strasser switching in on drums on this one, and Brendan Wright on tenor sax. Uh, Wright comes in for a section of the melody uh, on his own before he joins in together on the final section of the melody head. Newton adds a lot of nicely accented notes to bring intensity to his solo on this one, and the rhythm section picks up the tempo to match the mood, so the tune sort of uh, takes off a bit uh, once we get to the solos. Wright swings nicely on his solo. He has a big warm sound on sax, and uh, Hirahara shows off his great touch 
on the melody in his solo lines here he gets up into the upper register and shows off kind of his trademark chiming chords yeah beautiful uh, so yeah really nice playing I wrote uh, like raining beautiful tones yeah at the end. Rain. he's just <laughs> such a great pianist solo. yeah we just yeah, I like can't him a lot. hear enough of this guy uh, track five the bluest eyes another Newton original this is a Latin percussion uh, roll and an ostinato bass line that set up Hirahara's choppy chords and a driving melody it brings Shaw back in on alto with Newton here this one switches up to swing again <laughs> he likes this pattern uh, yeah. all players do it's so fun to play over uh, Newton solos first he shows off some chromatic and bluesy ideas uh, a lot of Freddie Hubbard influence I thought on uh, this tune uh, Shaw has some weaving legato lines in his solo, and then Hirahara mixes fast runs and then some real funky rhythms in his solo. This is a cool tune, uh, nice original composition here. Then uh, we've got a, a few compositions from other uh, musicians uh, that uh, Newton has been associated with. Uh, six is uh, Littoral by Marcus Schultz Reynolds. Um, this one has a really nice. Uh, piano intro by Hirahara that works into a kind of bossa nova beat ballad uh, once it gets going. Uh, we've got Patrick Cornelius on alto here. Uh, he harmonizes on the breezy melody and trades off sections with Newton. Uh, Strasser's here again on drums. Uh, Newton solos first. He keeps things exciting with staccato accented notes in between his other smoother phrases. And uh, Cornelius uh, has a solo as well. He has a warm tone in his phrases, have a nice balance of uh, melodic direction and rhythmic drive. Uh, so it's a nice tune as well. Hmm. Seven Pale by Sean Noel. Uh, Shaw is back again on alto here, and we get the addition of uh, Michael Deese on trombone. So you get a really nice thick horn section line going on this here and the kind of modern melody uh, jazz melodies worked in here the solos follow a pattern of breaks and then change ups of rhythm uh, so the rhythm is constantly changing up uh, to keep things interesting Shaw solos fluidly first then Newton uh, Hirohara's solo opens up into something different and then he turns out some real fleeting lines uh, and then some funky percussive chord playing. And uh, Royston and Kozlov set a great groove. They really lock in together under everything. So uh, it's a nice rhythmic treat on this tune. And uh, then we go to uh, The Force of Gravity. This is hmm. a tune by uh, Marcus Schultz Reynolds as well. This is back to quartet format. Uh, so just Newton on trumpet. Kozlov bows the bass under the rubato beginning uh, before switching to plucking that bounces the uh, waltzing rhythm to this tune along. Uh, Newton plays connected and lyrical on this one. And Hirahara gets a big space to open up here. Uh, with Royston using uh, nice cymbal work and textures with brushes. Uh, so it's a nice uh, tune as well. Nine, another uh, tune, this time uh, Hirahara original, Laws of Motion. And we've got Strasser and Cornelius back on this one. It's a hard swinging bop tune. The horn lines swing hard. Newton solos first. He gets in some nice accents, melodic descending phrases. And Cornelius swings hard in a really melodic solo as well. 
Hirahara's swinging really hard too, and he gets some more kind of uh, punctuated chords in here. He's really intense on this recording. Uh, uh, he's a great accompanist. He really knows how to add fire and push, you know, soloists along. Uh, track 10 is an interesting uh, title, uh, Lawn Dart. <laughs> in, now, lawn darts were these giant darts, and I think jarts, they had... Right? No, jarts are different. Are they? I think, because jarts okay. had a metal point on them. Right. This was completely insane. These were a children's toy in the yeah. 70s, and they were like giant darts with a huge, like, Harpoon like, yeah, we call them kill a, kid, kill a kid darts, right? <laughs> yeah, kill a kid darts. You know, jeez, you could you could kill people yeah. with these things. It was crazy, and they 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 sold as a children's toy. But I think lawn darts don't have the, the oh, pointy. Okay. I think they're they're kind of more of a, they they're made to balance or something. Oh, okay. You know, they're kind of like a rubber. Thing. I don't I don't know what they are. But the safety exactly. Safety edge. Uh, you're thinking of jarts. They were jarts, insane. Yeah. This one yeah. of the 1970s <laughs> where they just they just wanted us all to die, didn't they? Yeah. And you had a big. I hoop, remember a hoop you would set out. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that well. I remember my schoolyard too. There was like a there were these metal rungs that went up this like cement wall, and when you uh-huh. get to the top of the cement. Well, there's just nothing there to kind of step right. up on. So you have to kind of climb back down. I mean, the, the only thing you could do is climb up and down or fall off right. and crack your head on the concrete below. Yeah. It was so horrible, the things they made us do. All our friends who never graduated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we laugh now, but little we did we know now. that uh, how dangerous life was yeah. back then. Oh, anyway, this, uh, this dude I, I is... Think, uh, I think Americans hated children back then. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we weeded them out, you know. We, the we st- weeded Only them. the strong survived. <laughs> <laughs> Especially yeah. weeding with the lawn dart, yeah. Anyway, this is dart, a tune by jarts, Peter... Yeah. yeah. Peter Brendler. Uh, we've got Braxton Cook back on alto. Uh, we've got Changing Rhythms, uh, Start and Stop, Unison, Horn and Bass, Melody Line, uh, with no piano, Uh that set this tune apart. Uh, Hirahara joins in midway uh, through mm. Newton's solo, which has some I, I said that this piece had a goofy theme, angular goofy yeah, theme. It's kind, kind of, of something... Yeah, I'm imagining kind of, yeah, lawn darts flying through the air. Man. Uh, it's got, um, the beat swells and opens up on this one. Cook solos freely as well. Uh, cymbals and uh, bass reset things when Hirahara starts to solo. Uh, listen to Kozlov's changing bass lines uh, in this one. Uh, he's a really great bass player, uh, always adapting to what's going on around him. Hirahara gets some dissonant clusters and fades out uh, with high tinkles before Royston mixes things up on the drum kit uh, for a bit at the end. This is a lot of fun freedom in this tune. And we this end track up- made This track made me like, contemplate and how, how amazing it was that I actually survived childhood. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine all those dangerous things. In the yeah. 70s. Oh, man. Yeah. You just Boy. go out. Your mom would just say, go outside and play. You know, not like <laughs> the parents today were like, you're worried about your kid getting uh, kidnapped or falling. You know, we would just go yeah. out and do all this dangerous stuff. And uh, Oh, a little. Oh, if only they knew yeah, what we got knew, up yeah. to. They would never all let us out stuff, in the first yeah. place. And it but, wasn't like uh, other people were like harassing us. It no. was us doing it to each we other. We did our own damage, yeah. Yeah, boy. Mm. And right. uh, the last tune, uh, uh, finally a Newton original, Our Chosen Family. It'd be nice if you could choose your family. Mm. Anyway, uh, back to the quartet for the final tune here. 
Uh, it's got an energetic Latin beat, open kind of modal chord intro. It simmers into a ballad uh, when Newton comes in. But Kozlov's bass beats are kind of spring-loaded, and they launch into a motion again as Royston feeds it on the cymbals. It settles and rises again uh, as Newton rides the waves of what's going on. There's really nice Kozlov pulses uh, and change-ups that feed Hirohara's bouncy solo on this one. It's kind of a Woody Shaw influence, I thought, uh, hmm. in his composition here. You can tell Newton's trumpet influences, uh, also in his playing. And it's a fun, kind of free-spirited tune to end things up. I enjoyed this album. Uh, Newton shows a nice concept, good playing. The compositions are interesting. And you've got a real variety of uh, sax uh, companions here, uh, Desis trombone for spice on one tune, and this really great positone rhythm section. Uh, these guys are, are a nice combination. So I thought uh, it's a strong release and really enjoyable uh, piece overall. So, you know, uh, pick it up, listen to it, and, uh, you know, feel the love. Yeah, I enjoyed this album too, and especially this last track. It was very warm. I liked the the Our Chosen Families, obviously yeah, yeah. a family he wants to be in. So you know, yeah. from the uh, sound of it, for me, Art Hirohara really stole the show on this. I mean, everybody was great, but I just yeah. I was just so drawn in, like magnetically, to his playing. The pianist Art Hirohara, um, yeah. I really just loved everything he did on this record, and because he's not the. Uh, the soloist, like on, on the album we chose last year as one of the the best of the year, um, mm -hmm. he he really just kind of steps out of what we normally hear him do. Like he does a few really yeah. almost like dissonant sounding things, but right. here he's kind of accompanying, and I really just love him in this role. Yeah. So I I'd listen to this just for him if you like him. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, yeah, and, I do uh, like that album though. The that's a good one around. too. Yeah, yeah. and it, he yeah. just works together. Royston's an awesome drummer with like, mm. you know, small textures and things that he works in and, uh, and Kozlov too. And these guys work well together and they're like a single unit, uh, when they play. So, um, yeah, I think of this is sort of like, uh, you know, Kenny Barron on the, uh, Mm. Joe Farnsworth album, you know, where he's in that mode, that New York style. Right. Was hit a hot of here. He's more in his he's more in his like uh, French impressionist mode, I guess. Uh, yeah. He's playing a lot of like McCoy Tyner, you know, Claude Debussy influenced kind of uh, yeah. chords, and it's really light. So yeah. I really enjoyed him all the way through. He's like doing it's one hard, of the many it, things he can do. It's hard not yeah. to listen to what he's doing, even when there's yeah. somebody soloing over it, because he's that. It's interesting. true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. All right, and the other two albums we're going to branch out into you know i've i've tried to you know keep things as international as possible because i'm always interested in um you know what's going on with jazz around the world and especially you know hey we look at like the grammy award nominees they're boringly american and boringly well, I, I say uh, because even, even the classical ones are mostly yeah. american it's really well, nuts okay. it's really a european form granted <laughs> jazz, jazz is an American art form, and uh, right. you know, so we can expect the, you know, well, <laughs> despite the, well, the, the cutting lack edge of, is generally going to be in America. Yeah, despite the they're, lack, they're of, not nominating cutting edge albums. Despite generally. the lack of awareness and appreciation by Americans of its own native, you know, art right. form. Uh, right. But the, my criticism with all these awards things is always the same people. We know Chick Corea was great. We know it. We don't have to keep giving him awards. Uh, who cares about? Jesus. 
now that he's gone, too, he's yeah. not going to be able to enjoy it. <laughs> Who cares about awards anyway? I mean, I don't like the idea of awards. The only thing I like about awards is if it gives you something new to listen to, which usually the Grammys don't. Or yeah, but it, it introduces like people who don't normally listen to music to something. I guess. You know, so it, it serves a purpose. But anyway, the, I, I just don't like them. It's Plus, you have that, of, that thing on your fireplace. You give it to your grandkids. Yeah, you know, I guess. think you're amazing. But I've, I've tried to uh, branch <laughs> out. And so we've listened to, uh, over the last year, we've heard a lot of uh, Italian uh, musicians, uh, Italian jazz, because Italians Which are good at any kind me. of music. Yeah. <laughs> They're good at any kind of music. They invented music, so they're good at it. They invented music. Um, yeah. There was no music, and we invented music. <laughs> no. Yeah, they, were, they were hitting sticks and stones until the Italians came along. You know? um, <laughs> what is it like in The Sopranos? Like right at the beginning of the series when uh, oh, something, uh, they, they go into the, uh, I think it's a Starbucks or some one of those coffee shops, and they're looking at all the uh, you know, the Italian coffin making oh, yeah. stuff. He says, it was, oh, who was it? And he says, we gave these people, the, the Americans, we gave these people the gift of our culture when all they had was Pootsie. <laughs> <laughs> the gift of our culture. I love that. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, but we've heard, uh, so we've heard Italian jazz. Uh, we've also heard a lot of uh, uh, Scandinavian jazz, uh, Norway, Denmark, and uh, some French jazz uh, too. But uh, tonight we've got a couple countries we haven't heard from yet and uh so this was sort of expanding out um and the first one fittingly is called northern journey by uh manuel dunkel okay. and this is from finland yeah did you know they have jazz in finland well yes they Finnish do jazz uh finnish yeah they have and heavy metal in finland too they, they really like that yeah it fits they like dark... <laughs> yeah that's where for that. i think I remember the... this finnish heavy metal band came to japan and like every finnish person i knew went there and they were like yeah. hanging out with the band afterwards it might be the only really place funny. where heavy metal is still going strong i don't know oh it's going strong uh, it's always kind of underground one of I the guess. nice things about heavy metal is it's not commercial you know yeah that's true so it's got its big scene and the rest of us don't have to listen to it it's great <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, in in jazz, uh, uh, Dunkel's about uh, sort of uh, our generation, uh, born 1971. Uh, he's one of the top Finnish uh, jazz musicians. He's a very uh, kind of uh, refined saxophone technique and sound uh, and largely influenced by, uh, of course, John Coltrane, but also the great uh, modern more modern sex player, uh, Michael Brecker. And uh, so he's well known uh, in Finland and also Europe. And uh, let's see, he's uh, 1990. He entered the Sibelius Academy jazz program in Helsinki and he earned his master's in 2004. He's been on uh, the professional scene uh, for the last 20 years or so. Uh, and so this one, Northern Journey, is on Eclipse Music. Uh, we've got uh, Dunkel on tenor and soprano sax. He's also uh, written all the compositions, all original music here. Uh, I've got Alexi uh, Tuomaria on piano, uh, Antti Latjanen bass, and Diaska uh, Lukerinen on drums. And uh, we start out with a tune called Puzzle. And this is an interesting one to start out with. Uh, it's got this uh, 
repeating bass in piano uh, riff that's based on this interesting interval. If you listen to it, it sort of goes from like G, C, E, C, G, G, C sharp, uh, mm. E, C sharp, G. So it sort of goes up to tritone or that kind of implies like a Lydian scale. Uh, a fair interval. Yeah, the, the <laughs> basis. Yeah, tritone. So it forms the basis for this tune uh, and then uh, it's sort of on this uh, even beat that it breaks into sort of this walking bass line. Um, so you get this interesting harmonic progression. Uh, Dunkel blows the melody uh, with an easy, good sense of swing, but he has some bite in his phrasing. Uh, right away you get the sense of uh, Coltrane and Brecker in the formation of his concept. Uh, but uh, he swings a good solo too. Uh, then the piano solo, uh, Tua Marina, uh, he swings really nicely as well. And uh, there's a section you'll hear in his left hand where he emphasizes this tritone uh, sort of yeah. uh, uh, sort of a tension that builds in contrast to the left hand. That's a nice start. Uh, interesting kind of harmonic I like the puzzle. way the uh, rhythm I like the way the rhythm changed under him when he yeah. was, when he kind of got to consult he got this kind of groovy 60s yeah. sounding rhythm it was yeah. really cool so um, a yeah, nice interesting original composition two cool title New Planets where are they um, maybe right <laughs> here got a median tempo tune it starts with these alternating piano chords Dunkel brings in kind of an easy loping melody uh, then his solo has a lot of rhythmic variety, weaving phrases through the harmonies. Uh, he gets into the upper register. Uh, the pianist uh, Tuomarilla takes a rhythmic approach to his solo here, too. He has a very precise kind of attack. Uh, uh, Luke uh, mixes up the drums nicely behind the riffs. Uh, gets some cool rhythmic ideas and the tune ends up with a repeated sax groove and bass riff uh, there's a lot of nice harmonies in this tune and I found that all of Dunkel's compositions the har the harmonic progressions are really well thought out and interesting uh, so he's a good composer uh, as well as a player track three is called Law of Nature it begins with a drum tom intro Add an ostinato bass riff and some dark rolling piano chords. Uh, Dunkel switches to soprano here, and uh, mm. has a really nice, thick, and fluid tone. It's not nasal at all, uh, mm. which can be the annoying uh, side of soprano sax. Not in this case. Uh, the harmony is nice on this tune. It's like a, a dark minor and then kind of like voodoo kind of thing that lifts, changes to an uplifting major chord kind of contrast. Uh, so Dunkel blows in and out of the chords, shows his Coltrane influence, nice arc to his solo structure, builds it up to a climax. Uh, Tuomorina keeps the rhythm kind of funky behind his solo, and uh, he finds a cool mix of bluesy dissonance uh, before he gets back to the rolling chords that set up the atmosphere. So a uh, cool tune. Hmm. Uh, four, Mr. Nelson. I'm not sure who that refers to. Uh, it's Oliver Nelson, the sax player, or uh, some other Nelson. I don't know. Or could just be some guy. Yeah, it could be some guy, Nelson. <laughs> yeah, Nelson Some Riddle. teacher he had once. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, it's an interesting composition. There's a lot of harmonic movement, catchy, repeated descending line section in the melody. Uh Lagunin works uh, hard for, uh, for Dunko's cello, and the piano drops out. Uh, 
it gives him some space to expand uh, harmonically, which he does, but always just ties his ideas together well. Uh, Tumorilia jumps back in for a solo uh, that uh, jumps around a lot, but features a lot of rhythmic chords too. It's kind of cool. And then sax, piano, and drums trade off eight-bar solo phrases uh, and uh, gives some uh, spotlight to uh, Lucronin too. It's a really fun tune. I like this one a lot. Hmm. Uh, five, we've got a tune, Yesterday's Dream. It's a 6-8 swinging ballad, pretty harmonies. Uh, Dunkel shows nice phrasing on the melody. Uh, the pianist Tom Morilla is up for a solo first. Well-articulated runs, interesting interval figures. Dunkel's solo is a nice mix of lyrical playing and agility through fast figures. And Lachinen gets a nice chance for a solo here as well. He shows a good sense of melody and a great woody bass tone. Uh, and then you think the tune's over, but there's an extra ending phrase that's a nice surprise. Uh, hmm. So it's a pretty tune. Uh, six, we get an uh, interesting tune, Komodo Dragon. Uh, not something you think you're going to encounter in Finland, but... <laughs> no, it starts I, with a C, too. Like, yeah. it gets, gets usually spelled with a K, so I'm kind of wondering yeah. if he's not referencing the uh, the Italian word, com- Komodo Comfortable. <laughs> it could be, yeah, Comfortable Dragon. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but... Uh, the Comfortable yeah, a, Dragon, I don't know. It's a syncopated, ominous modal chord intro here. yeah. Fast this has like open fifths in the bass to yeah. the piano bass, yeah. Fast cymbal work uh, behind that. Dunkel plays the fast melody, uh, which has cool bass and left-hand piano answer phrases to it. And then he starts his own solo over just bass and drums. Uh, piano comes back in in spots to feed some chords. Uh, and Dunkel really works up the intensity, blows hard on this tune. Uh, the, the drummer, uh, Lucerne and some great symbol work behind here and Tumorio's solo is very intense too these got these long rapid fire lines uh, repeated rhythmic figures uh, it's a cool intense tune uh, track seven my heart says this is a slow 404 ballad uh, again Dinko's compositions are really nice really pretty harmonies here uh, after the melody uh, the uh, bass player Lautunen a really nice melodic woody solo. It sounds really lovely. Uh, piano solo here too has some interesting rhythmic figures. They cross the lines over the meter. Uh, he's you know, just crossing over phrases with expanded ideas. Gives a lot of sense of forward motion. Uh, and Dunko on his own sax solo gets a slow fire burning. Gets more intense, but he keeps it lyrical and some final flurries in the short sax cadenza at the end. And the uh, recording ends up with the title track, Northern Journey. Starts with a mysterious ascending bass riff and some drumming that introduces a longing sax melody that has a kind of Latin beat to it. Uh, Dunkel plays it sultry and intense in his solo. It's helped uh, with some really nice uh, piano uh, descending chords uh, and then the piano solo is inspired here as well uh, Dunkel takes it out uh, smoothly over another bass riff to end the recording uh, so I you know this is new to me um, didn't know much about uh, F- Finnish jazz or Dunkel but mm. he shows a really nice uh, modern tenor sensibility you know He's taken his Coltrane vitamins and also all the things Brecker has <laughs> done, 
kind of got his original concept here. He's got an intriguing tome, ample technique, uh, nice compositions. They're varied, attractive, with interesting harmonies. And uh, the rhythm section is good here and helps everything out work too. So I thought it's a good recording. Yeah, I just found that all these um, these works, are, they're pretty inventive, uh, yeah. rhythmically harmonic. I really enjoyed them, actually. It was a little, it was pretty fresh sounding yeah. without being like, you know, breaking tremendous new ground. I just, you know, it was an enjoyable recording. Yeah, they're enjoyable. And um, especially the harmonies, I thought, you know, um, they kept surprising me. And uh, I think the best kind of... Uh, Good players who compose well, too, they sort of create these little problems for themselves to solve. Right. And so they make for these kind of fresh movements of harmony. Uh, and I found that here uh, that I was, you know, would be listening to something and it would go somewhere unexpected. I said, oh, that's cool. And that's cool. Um, yeah. So not not only is he, is he a good sax player, but he, he writes really nice, fresh kind of material, too. Yeah, worth and, a listen. Give that a listen. Yeah, take a listen. Finland has great jazz too. And now... So does. Poland. Poland. Yeah. And so uh, this is on the Polski radio <laughs> recording Perfect. table. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Monusko, Monusko jazz. Yeah. By Piotr Baron. Yeah. Now, Stanislav Moniusko was a Polish composer right. in the Romantic era, 1819, 1872. Yeah. He's sort of like the father of modern yeah. Polish uh, classical I, music. I, so, Well, I, maybe that would be uh, Chopin, right? <laughs> but I don't know. Um, but I think more like, um, how can I say? Yeah. Uh, like the father, but yeah. Like folk tunes and, okay. and it's kind I of working see. things, you know. Um, yeah, this. See, I, yeah. I don't know anything about this composer, to be yeah. honest, Monusko. Yeah, I think he's more like an earthy. That's what I. My impression was he was more. I know he wrote opera yeah. too. I think um, right. He did but, everything: uh, the operas, the yeah. artist, you know, or Chopin was like songs. We yeah. think of you know, it's the, the he's piano, piano only, the piano basically. Um, great. Anyway, and I don't know if how this relates to that composer or not I don't I couldn't find much information about this but I do know that uh, the artist Piotr Braun is uh, you know well respected uh, European Polish born uh, saxophonist uh, mm. he's born in uh, Rochla Poland 1961 he's performed with all the top Polish and European jazz musicians and uh, his other list of uh, you know great uh uh, co-collaborators uh, with music include even uh, Ray Charles, Art Farmer, Billy Harper, oh, wow. David Murray, uh, Victor Lewis, uh, and one of my favorite pianists, John Hicks. Uh, mm. As a sideman, he's recorded on more than 80 albums. And uh, he's also had his own jazz radio show, uh, which I guess he's had on and off and he's back doing again uh, now. Um, so... Yeah, he's uh, uh, one of the top players from Poland and Europe in general. And uh, this is his uh, latest recording. Uh, he's here on various saxophones and also, as we'll see, bass clarinet, mm. which is always cool. Uh, that was very cool. Yeah. We've got uh, Mikhail Toka, Toka, piano, Robert Majewski, 
trumpet and flugelhorn. Uh, I'm going to have a hard time with these names here now. Uh, with the, I, I didn't check out the names of Masia his... Masia uh, Adamchak on bass. Okay. Lucas Jata, is it? Uh, let me see if I can get this name uh, right. Polish is pretty hard for pronunciation, you know? Well, uh, it's hard to... You have all these consonants, you don't really yeah, know let me what, see here. They, what they're all saying. Uh, I think it's Juta. Juta, uh, okay. Juta. Lucas Juta on drums. And uh, as we said, is this after uh, Stanislaw Muniszko, the Polish composer? It's hard to know because the tunes here are seem to be sort of like, uh, I don't know, Catholic-influenced uh, uh Well, they're going to be after uh, Moniusko, the composer, so I'm guessing yeah. it's one of his uh, church could works. Be. could be one yeah. of his works, but I couldn't find anything about those works specifically that wasn't in right. Polish, and I didn't have time to, to translate yeah. all of this stuff. Anyway, um, so uh, we've got, uh, well, the first one's not Polish, but... Uh, it's Agnes Day, right? Yeah, Agnes Day, the Lamb of God prayer, uh, yeah. uh, which uh, you know me think is a religious work. Although this doesn't sound like something you'd hear in church, but yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, starts out with a drum intro. We've got some really chiming piano chords, and uh, here we've got uh, Baron on soprano sax and Womajuski uh, on trumpet and so they share the melody here and uh, Jutta keeps the drum beat uh, mixed up and intense underneath this guy's a really heavy drummer <laughs> she'll mm. come to see as you listen to this um, uh, he may be uh, have more of a rock background too just because he's uh, very intense uh, Baron solos first here you get a sense of his sound a great thick tone again not a nasal soprano song sound at all but this guy's got one of those really thick soprano tones very fluid but he can also pull out the strangulation uh a yeah. la david liebman as we heard uh recently so he can get the sort of different effects of tone uh, this solo goes into an odd tonal place too it's, yeah. it sounds like he's playing one of the more odd sounding modes yeah you know, when he does this yeah, yeah. it gets very harmonically advanced here uh, Adam Czech has a nice staccato bass hits and glisses underneath this. Uh, and I was also, on this whole album, I'm impressed with Majewski on trumpet. Uh, he works really skillfully through the harmonic modes on this tune. Uh, also, a lot of skillfully used chromaticism in his fluid lines. Um, stylistically, he reminds me a lot of Randy Brecker uh, oh. in his flowing lines and tone. Uh I did say athletic for him. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great influence to have. Um, things come down for Tukaz's piano solo at the beginning. He starts with some kind of disjointed lines and trills. Uh, works through some harmonic ideas and then gets some rapidly repeating notes and prettier rolling harmonic ideas. Uh, the groove returns towards the end of his solo. He keeps the intensity going. Uh and uh, right when the melody comes back, he ke he keeps that going underneath everything there. So it's kind of a cool tune. Um, yeah, a lot of energy and commitment by the right. players in this track. They're really yeah. intense on this this track and this whole album. Uh, the second track, Ariage 
Was, I don't know how you pronounce it. Adia Zukurantam. Which I guess is area with a chime. That's, that's, that's what I got. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this one has a dancing bass line and toms at the beginning. It gives a kind of a skippy rhythm. Uh, Baron's on tenor on this one. Uh, trumpet is harmonizing with this very kind of happy melody. Um, it breaks into a fast swing after a crashing break from uh, Zura on drums. Uh, Baron solos first. He swings hard. He's got a very breathy tenor tone. Uh, Majewski has a swinging solo. Uh, and then there's a piano solo here that's got some nice digging rhythmic figures. And then we've got a, a drum solo here. <laughs> uh, this Jutta, uh, he's a really heavy hitter and he, he really pounds on this one. Um, then it returns uh, to the swinging melody. Uh, there's kind of a false ending on this tune and uh, kind of uh, a uh, reprise into uh, the skipping beat uh, with uh, Takaj chiming and tinkling to a happy finish. Uh, it's a very kind of intense tune. Uh, three, Piesem Pokutna. Yeah, song Piesem of penance. Pokutna, I've got. Pokutna, <laughs> yeah. Song of Penance. Yep. Uh, a pretty piano intro. Bass clarinet and flugelhorn here. Uh, they play a slow plaintive melody that's in contrast to the very bright piano figures that are going on behind it. So the, the real interesting thing in movement is in the accompaniment, although the fatness of the bass clarinet draws you in. Um, the piano takes over, soloing kind of wistfully. Uh, there's well-placed bass lines underneath that. Uh, then Baron solos on the bass clarinet. Uh, he plays... That was awesome. Re- yeah, relaxed. <laughs> great his, sound. His playing style is relaxed, <laughs> but the tone is so huge. And when he yeah. scoops down low, it's like, kind of, you know, resonates everything in your living room. Um, if I heard this in my, yeah, my living room, would be yeah. a nice chest cavity kind of rumble in there. Uh, Majewski keeps the soft dreamy mood because he switched to flugelhorn here uh he gets some motion with faster lines when the tempo picks up but he keeps his articulation smooth uh adamshak has a uh bass solo next it's very melodic and rhythmic uh with soft attacks uh so although he emphasizes the rhythm it's uh kind of uh soft in nature the horns come back with the melody and the piano dances above the thick textures again. This is really beautiful. This is a standout. There's only five yeah. tracks here, but this one I thought is um, uh, just with was, the, the tone of the bass clarinet is just great. The the bass clarinet was fantastic. I thought the, 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 the opening melody, it's a very funereal theme, mm. so it's kind of down, I think. Yeah, but yeah that, that really made the piece for me, the, uh, the yeah. bass clarinet. I love that sound. Then we've got, uh, let's see, how can we Piesce, pronounce this? I, I, I did this. Okay. Piesin Via Churna. Piesin Via Churna. The yeah. evening song. Yes. And what I, is interesting th- about th- this... Th- thank you to the magic of the internet for that yeah. pronunciation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Glad you got that. I looked it up, but I forgot it. Uh, it's okay. a swinging tune, but it's in 5-4. Uh, so a time signature we don't hear all that often. Uh, but they make it sound uh, natural here. Baron's back on tenor, Majewski on the flugelhorn still. They trade off parts on the melody. Uh, Majewski 
has another really fluid solo. Here he shows off his agility on the smooth flugelhorn. Uh, but interestingly, Byrne switches to soprano sax when he solos. Uh, he's swinging uh, hard here, but he also gets some swooping uh, kind of tones, uh, and he's pushed by uh, Tokaj's rhythmic piano chords, who uh, takes over next with a very happy-sounding piano solo in contrast. Uh, and he's got some blazing runs and bluesy figures here. The horns return for the melody, and everybody jams out a bit until the ending over some more chiming piano chords. And uh, it's a short album. The tracks are kind of long with longer solos, but we only got five tunes. Uh, the last one is called uh, Rota. And I don't know if this refers to the Catholic Church kind of, you know, uh, judicial body or something uh or if it's yeah something else. Well, I, what makes I, you I think know. that i don't know just because it's all kind of the other pieces were sort of religious right away i nature. thought you know nino wrote them, but how could that have could, anything to do with uh monusco you know? yeah <laughs> i have no idea i can't yeah, figure out it's kind of uh it certainly uh, didn't sound like anything no. that would be a tribute to Nino Rota. I actually tried to look for like something in Monusco's music, but I couldn't figure this out. No, I have no idea. Um, I don't know if it's the Isle of Rota uh, in the Mariana Islands either. Probably not. I uh, doubt that. No idea. It could be some <laughs> kind of like bread or something. Uh, no idea. Anyway, the tune itself. Rota bread. Yeah, Rota bread. It's got the uh, sound of complex Latin drum rhythms, syncopated piano chords, and this uh, ostinato bass line uh, that makes a contrast for the lyrical unison horn melodies on the tune. Um, Majewski is back on trumpet, and he solos first here. Uh, he's more chromatic and harmonically explorative here. Uh, Baron is next on tenor. He plays a lot of interesting lines, uh, rapid figures, but with soft articulation. Uh, Takaja's piano solo makes uh, the most of the rhythm. He adds a lot of syncopated and hard attacked chords to his lines. And Jutta, uh, working hard behind it all on drums the whole time. Uh, this guy's a busy, uh, calorie-burning drummer, and he gets a chance <laughs> to jam out at the end of the tune over kind of a bass pattern. I think he had a few espressos to... Uh, power up before this tune because uh, he gets to work hard uh, so that's it only five tunes here uh, but they're extended uh, some of them are up to 11 minutes so the solos uh, are longer I thought uh, yeah uh, Baron is uh, shows he's got great chops class uh, tenor sax soprano sax bass clarinet uh, and he's got a really nice group of musicians, uh, particularly Majuski on trumpet. His skills impressed me a lot. I've uh, got world-class musicianship, great solos, uh, nice variety of compositions. And uh, yeah, Barnes' woodwind arsenal is formidable, uh, especially when you pull out the bass clarinet. It's kind of yeah. like a bazooka. Everybody better sit back and get ready, you know, for those <laughs> big tones. So, um, And it makes a great sound, too. Yeah. So yeah, Polish whole- jazz... Yeah. yeah, not only that, but they had so much, again, like I'm going to repeat, energy and commitment, the commitment to these works. Mm. These uh, They really felt like they were really locked in yeah. to putting these across. I really uh, appreciated that a lot. Yeah. And both this, Finland, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to be listed in the Grammy Awards or anything American-centric, but uh, these are great musicians, as good as anyone, uh, anyone oh, yeah. you're going to hear. And uh, 
Yeah. And you'll probably uh, hear them in the U.S. too, because I'm sure they hope so. go yeah. out there quite a bit. So at least sidemen, you know. International spice to your jazz repertoire with these. Jazz, uh, jazz you know, it's things. an American form. It's, 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 it is international, though. It has been for quite some time. And I think we need to really acknowledge that more, because there's some great jazz musicians all over the world now. All over the world, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean... It's a shame. Including Asia and North Africa, too. Yeah. Who would well, have it's thought, a shame you know? that, you know, Americans don't know this music anymore. Most, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? The average well, that's, person. Well, part of, the, part of our reason for being is to uh, bring it back to them, yeah. you know. But the thing is, you know. I mean, there's a good, jazz audience, but we want to reach someone beyond that. We want to get good people music listening. music hits the ear of musicians yeah. from starting from any culture to any other culture around the world you know it's you know this sort of woke idea of cultural appropriation is that's nonsense in music uh great music once you release it it's going to inspire someone somewhere yeah music by its nature wants to be shared it it just kind of you just absorb it you know it's just you know and then the onus is it brings people together the person who hears it if they're inspired enough to want you know, anyone can listen to it and think it's great, which is why jazz has fans around the world in Japan and other places. And right. then if you hear a music that's from a foreign culture that you don't know anything about, you know, if if, if we hear flamenco music or something, you're not going to be a good flamenco player by, you know, diddling in your own room. You're going to have to go and explore what yeah. that music and cultural, you know, reference points are about. Um, but right. there are people who heard jazz music or any other style of music around the world and it inspired them to become you know better musicians and absorb themselves in that tradition uh and culture and then bring something new to it and uh you know so i think that's you know jazz is an international music now yeah remember um america has exported its culture pretty (laughs) yeah pretty aggressively so it's a known quantity like abroad yeah, people for people sure. um know quite a bit about it and also especially after world war ii jazz really you know yeah. especially in japan it really picked up here and uh just all over europe too it just became you know it, it slowly grew from you know after you know the war america was all over the place then yeah. and it's just a pick you put down new roots and grew in yeah. it's in those various places as well it's everywhere it's everywhere um, yeah, so I'm um, I'm always interested to see what's popping up in all the different countries around the globe. Yeah, I, I like that too. Are, these are two really good uh, picks of. Uh, it's really exciting when music that you really love, like you know, for me, like you know, classical music, you know, jazz, if music we're really familiar with, and then it gets into foreign cultures, then what they're going to do with it is always really fascinating to yeah. me. Add a little spice. It's always going to be a little different. There's going to be some element of their culture they're going to put into exactly. it. I really love that. Jazz has always been a sponge. I mean, even you know American players and well, all uh, music is. Yeah, you know? I mean, uh, they were experimenting with you know Afro-Cuban rhythms and Indian music and other types of things, uh, you know, along the way. And uh, yeah, yeah I don't classical th- I don't music the, too. I don't think the Indian music instrumentation uh, or the uh, experiments went very well, except for Coltrane. I think he had a yeah. lot of really amazing well, uh, I mean, I results think with that. The modal yeah. concept, yeah, went to, yeah. added a lot to uh, how jazz would shape up. And well, maybe I'll take that back because now I'm thinking about Pharaoh Sanders. You know, he had a lot of oh. Indian kind of like sort of 
that you was know, cool melodic too. structures in his playing too yeah so yeah I mean it's all good and uh, I just think we should uh, I mean I, and now you can hear all these interesting things from around the globe so we'll be uh, continuing to explore the international possibilities we've got Chinese classical music and uh, Polish and Finnish jazz music it's pretty international tonight right and we're just getting started yeah. Number one. It's it's going to be an international year. Of, you know, the number one episode for 2022, episode 44. We, we were all around the world in one episode. All around the world in one episode. Where can we go from here? Maybe that's a title. Oh. Okay, around the see. world in one episode? We'll have to discuss this. Something, yeah, we'll have to do something yeah. about it. That's a good inspiration. Yeah. So, there you have it. We're just getting started. It's a new year. Where are we going to go? You'll have to listen tune in again every week this year for uh, more we're international gonna try. <laughs> we'll try 52 weeks here we go 52, one we down go. 51 to go yeah so uh, actually there might be 53 episodes though it depends on when the weeks fall you know we might have we'll get some extra ones we'll put some extra ones in there we'll probably have some extra have ones some too interviews coming up too so yeah yeah anyway if you've made it this far to the end of the episode, listeners, Happy New Year. Thanks for sticking with us. This has been episode 44 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, please do take a moment to like or subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Uh, again, if you have uh, any comments, questions, you want to contact us directly, that's uh, Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back again next week with six new recordings for episode 45. So until then, Happy New Year. Stay tuned, and we'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.